schizophrenia spectrum and other psychotic disorders. Although we tend to discuss schizophrenia as if it is a single disease, it likely comprises a group of disorders with heterogeneous etiologies, which includes patients whose clinical presentations, treatment response, and courses of illness vary. Signs and symptoms are variable and include changes in perception, emotion, cognition, thinking, and behavior. The expression of these symptoms varies across patients and over time, but the effect of the illness is always severe and is usually long-lasting. The disorder usually begins before age 25 years, persists throughout life, and affects persons of all social classes. Both patients and their families often suffer from inadequate care and social ostracism because of widespread ignorance about the disorder. Schizophrenia is one of the most common of the severe mental disorders, but its essential nature remains to be clarified. Thus, it is sometimes referred to as a syndrome, as a group of disorders, or, as in the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, DSM-5, the schizophrenia spectrum disorders. Clinicians should appreciate that the diagnosis of schizophrenia is based entirely on psychiatric history and mental status examination. There is no laboratory test for schizophrenia. Because schizophrenia begins early in life, causes significant and long-lasting impairments, makes heavy demands for hospital care, and requires ongoing clinical care, rehabilitation, and support services, the financial cost of the illness in the United States likely exceeds that of all cancers combined. Patients with a diagnosis of schizophrenia account for 15-45% of homeless Americans, and about 5% of patients with schizophrenia per year are homeless. Worldwide, schizophrenia is one of the top 25 leading causes of disability. This fact is striking, given its relatively low prevalence. However, this disorder affects not only individuals but families, caregivers, and societies overall. For this reason, indirect costs are enormous and often underestimated. The clinical presentation. No clinical sign or symptom is potnomonic for schizophrenia. Every sign or symptom seen in schizophrenia occurs in other psychiatric and neurologic disorders. Therefore, a patient's history is essential for the diagnosis of schizophrenia. Clinicians cannot diagnose schizophrenia only by results of a single mental status examination, as symptoms change with time. For example, a patient may have intermittent hallucinations and a varying ability to perform adequately in social situations, or significant symptoms of a mood disorder may come and go. The clinician should also take into account the patient's educational level, intellectual ability, and cultural and subcultural membership. An impaired ability to understand abstract concepts, for example, may reflect either the patient's education or intelligence. Religious organizations and cults may have customs that seem strange to outsiders but are typical to those within the cultural setting. The appearance of a patient with schizophrenia can range from that of a completely disheveled, screaming, agitated person to an obsessively groomed, completely silent, and immobile person. Between these two extremes, patients may be talkative and may exhibit bizarre postures. Their behavior may become agitated or violent, apparently in an unprovoked manner, but usually in response to hallucinations. Patients with schizophrenia are often poorly groomed, fail to bathe, and dress too warmly for the prevailing temperatures. Other odd behaviors include tics, stereotypies, mannerisms, and, occasionally, echopraxia, in which patients imitate the posture or the behavior of the examiner. Patient AB, a 32-year-old woman, began to lose weight and became careless about her work, which deteriorated in quality and quantity. She believed that other women at her place of employment were circulating slanderous stories concerning her and complained that a young man employed in the same plant had put his arm around her and insulted her. Her family demanded that the charge be investigated, which showed not only that the charge was without foundation but also that the man in question had not spoken to her for months. One day she returned home from work, and as she entered the house, she laughed loudly, watched her sister-in-law suspiciously, refused to answer questions, and at the sight of her brother began to cry. She refused to go to the bathroom, saying that a man was looking in the windows at her. She ate no food, and the next day she declared that her sisters were bad women, that everyone was talking about her, and that someone had been having sexual relations with her and although she could not see him, he was always around. 
The patient was admitted to a public psychiatric hospital. As she entered the admitting office, she laughed loudly and repeatedly screamed in a loud tone, she cannot stay here, she's got to go home. She grimaced and performed various stereotyped movements of her hands. When seen on the ward an hour later, she paid no attention to questions, although she talked to herself in a childish tone. She moved about constantly, walked on her toes in a dancing manner, pointed aimlessly about, and put out her tongue and sucked her lips in the manner of an infant. At times she moaned and cried like a child but shed no tears. As the months passed, she remained silly, childish, preoccupied, and inaccessible, grimacing, gesturing, pointing at objects in a stereotyped way, and usually chattering to herself in a peculiar high-pitched voice, with little of what she said being understood. Her condition continued to deteriorate, she remained unkempt, and she presented a picture of extreme introversion and regression, with no interest either in the activities of the institution or in her relatives who visited her. Adapted from case of Arthur P. Noyes, M.D., and Lawrence C. Kolb, M.D. Catatonic stupor, often referred to simply as catatonia, is a condition in which patients seem completely lifeless and may exhibit such signs as muteness, negativism, and automatic obedience. Waxy flexibility, once a common sign in catatonia, has become rare, as has manneristic behavior. A person with a less extreme subtype of catatonia may show marked social withdrawal and egocentricity, a lack of spontaneous speech or movement, and an absence of goal-directed behavior. Patients with catatonia may sit immobile and speechless in their chairs, respond to questions with only short answers, and only move when directed. Other overt behavior may include odd clumsiness or stiffness in body movements. Localizing and non-localizing neurologic signs, also known as hard and soft signs, respectively, are more common in patients with schizophrenia than in other psychiatric patients. Non-localizing signs include dysdiatocokinesia, astereognosis, primitive reflexes, and diminished dexterity. The presence of neurologic signs and symptoms correlates with increased severity of illness, effective blunting, and a poor prognosis. Other abnormal neurologic signs include tics, stereotypies, grimacing, impaired fine motor skills, abnormal motor tone, and abnormal movements. Most patients are not aware of their abnormal involuntary movements. In addition to the disorder of smooth ocular pursuit, saccadic movement, patients with schizophrenia have an elevated blink rate. The elevated blink rate may reflect hyperdopaminergic activity. The inability of schizophrenia patients to perceive the prosody of speech or to inflect their speech is characteristic of disorders of the nondominant parietal lobe. Other parietal lobe symptoms in schizophrenia include the inability to carry out tasks, i.e., apraxia, right-eft disorientation, and a lack of concern about the disorder. Mood. Two common effective symptoms in schizophrenia are reduced emotional responsiveness, sometimes severe enough to warrant the label of anhedonia, and overly active and inappropriate emotions such as extremes of rage, happiness, and anxiety. A flat or blunted affect can be a symptom of the illness itself, of the Parkinsonian adverse effects of antipsychotic medications, or depression, and differentiating these symptoms can be a clinical challenge. Overly emotional patients may describe exultant feelings of omnipotence, religious ecstasy, terror at the disintegration of their souls, or paralyzing anxiety about the destruction of the universe. Other feeling tones include perplexity, a sense of isolation, overwhelming ambivalence, and depression. Thoughts. Psychotic disorders are, first and foremost, thought disorders and the disorder may affect either the process or content of their thought or both. A schizophrenia patient's thoughts may be challenging to understand and elicit. However, this is essential, as thought symptoms may represent the core symptoms of schizophrenia. Disorders of thought concern the way we formulate ideas and languages. We sometimes call these formal thought disorders. The examiner infers a disorder from what and how the patient speaks, writes, or draws. The examiner may also assess the patient's thought process by observing their behavior, especially in carrying out discrete tasks, e.g., in occupational therapy. When mild, thought disorders might present as stilted or vague. As it worsens, associations become looser. 
The patient may display circumstantiality, tangential thinking, perseverative thinking, neologisms, echolalia, verbigeration, word salad, and mutism. Delusions. Delusions, the most obvious example of a disorder of thought content, are varied in schizophrenia and may assume persecutory, grandiose, religious, or somatic forms. Patients may believe that an outside entity controls their thoughts or behavior or, conversely, that they extraordinarily control outside events, such as causing the sun to rise. Patients may have an intense and consuming preoccupation with esoteric, abstract, symbolic, psychological, or philosophic ideas. Patients may also worry about allegedly life-threatening but bizarre and implausible somatic conditions, such as the presence of aliens inside the patient's testicles affecting his ability to father children. The phrase loss of ego boundaries describes the lack of a clear sense of where the patient's own body, mind, and influence end and where those of other animate and inanimate objects begin. For example, patients may think that other persons, the television, or the newspapers are referring to them, ideas of reference. Thought control, in which outside forces are controlling what the patient thinks or feels, is common, as is thought broadcasting, in which patients think others can read their minds or that they can broadcast their thoughts through televisions. Other signs of a loss of ego boundaries include the sense that the patient has physically fused with an external object, e.g., a tree or another person, or that the patient has disintegrated and fused with the entire universe, cosmic identity. With such a state of mind, some patients with schizophrenia doubt their gender or their sexual orientation. These symptoms should not be confused with gender identity problems. Hallucinations. Any of the five senses may be affected by hallucinatory experiences in patients with schizophrenia. The most common hallucinations, however, are auditory, with voices that are often threatening, obscene, accusatory, or insulting. Two or more voices may converse among themselves, or a voice may comment on the patient's life or behavior. A 48-year-old man, who had been diagnosed with schizophrenia while in the army at age 21 years, led an isolated and often frightened existence, living alone and supported by disability payments. Although he would confirm that he had chronic auditory hallucinations, he was never comfortable with discussing the content of these hallucinations, and a review of records showed this was a long-term pattern for the patient. Otherwise the patient had good rapport with his psychiatrist and was enthusiastic about the possibility of participating in a study of a novel antipsychotic agent. During the informed consent procedure, the patient asked about the possibility that the new medication might decrease his chronic auditory hallucinations. When it was acknowledged that any response was possible, including decreases in his hallucinations, the patient broke off the discussion abruptly and left the office. At a later visit, he reported that his most reliable pleasure in life was nightly discussions of gossip with hallucinations of voices he believed belonged to 17th-century French courtiers, and the chance that he might lose these conversations and the companionship they offered was too frightening for him to consider. Adapted from Stephen Lewis, M.D., P. Rodrigo Escalona, M.D., and Samuel J. Keith, M.D. Visual hallucinations are common, but tactile, olfactory, and gustatory hallucinations are unusual. Their presence should prompt the clinician to consider the possibility of an underlying medical or neurologic disorder that is causing the entire syndrome. Psychotic disorders can affect other senses, as well. For example, senesthetic hallucinations are unfounded sensations of altered states in bodily organs. Examples of senesthetic hallucinations include a burning sensation in the brain, a pushing sensation in the blood vessels, and a cutting sensation in the bone marrow. Bodily distortions may also occur. Cognition. Patients with schizophrenia are usually oriented to person, time, and place. The lack of such orientation should prompt clinicians to investigate the possibility of a medical or neurologic brain disorder. Some patients with schizophrenia may give incorrect or bizarre answers stemming from their delusions, such as, I am Christ, this is heaven, and it is Alzheimer's disease 35. Memory, as tested in the mental status examination, is usually intact, but there can be minor cognitive deficiencies. It may not be possible, however, to get the patient to attend closely enough to the memory tests for the ability to be assessed adequately. 
A significant development in the understanding of the psychopathology of schizophrenia is the appreciation of subtle cognitive impairment. In outpatients, cognitive impairment is a better predictor of the level of function than is the severity of psychotic symptoms. Patients with schizophrenia typically exhibit subtle cognitive dysfunction in the domains of attention, executive function, working memory, and episodic memory. Although a substantial percentage of patients have average intelligence quotients, every person who has schizophrenia may have cognitive dysfunction compared with what he or she would be able to do without the disorder. Although these impairments cannot function as diagnostic tools, they are strongly related to the functional outcome of the illness and, for that reason, have clinical value as prognostic variables, as well as for treatment planning. The cognitive impairment seems already to be present when patients have their first episode and appear largely to remain stable throughout the early illness. There may be a small subgroup of patients who have true dementia in late life that is not due to other cognitive disorders, such as Alzheimer's disease. Cognitive impairments are also present in attenuated forms in non-psychotic relatives of schizophrenia patients. The cognitive impairments of schizophrenia have become the target of pharmacologic and psychosocial treatment trials. Hopefully, effective treatments for these impairments will become available soon. Insight and judgment and reliability. Classically, patients with schizophrenia have poor insight into the nature and severity of their disorder. The so-called lack of insight is associated with poor compliance with treatment. When examining schizophrenia patients, clinicians should carefully define various aspects of insight, such as awareness of symptoms, trouble getting along with people, and the reasons for these problems. Such information can be clinically useful in tailoring a treatment strategy and theoretically useful in postulating what areas of the brain contribute to the observed lack of insight, e.g., the parietal lobes. A patient with schizophrenia is no less reliable than any other psychiatric patient. The nature of the disorder, however, requires the examiner to verify relevant information through additional sources. Safety concerns. Patients with schizophrenia may be agitated and have little impulse control when ill. They may also have decreased social sensitivity and appear to be impulsive when, for example, they grab another patient's cigarettes, change television channels abruptly, or throw food on the floor. Some impulsive behavior, including suicide and homicide attempts, may be in response to hallucinations commanding the patient to act. Violent behavior, excluding homicide, is common among untreated schizophrenia patients, and the increased odds of a patient with schizophrenia committing acts of violence, compared to the general population, is 49% to 68%. Delusions of a persecutory nature, previous episodes of violence, and neurologic deficits are risk factors for violent or impulsive behavior. If a clinician feels fearful in the presence of a schizophrenic patient, they should take this as an internal clue that the patient may be on the verge of acting out violently. In such cases, the clinician should terminate the interview or conduct it with an attendant at the ready. Suicide. Suicide is the single leading cause of premature death among people with schizophrenia. The lifetime prevalence of suicidality in patients with schizophrenia is about 34. Percent. Suicide attempts are made by 20 to 50% of the patients, with long-term rates of suicide estimated to be 10 to 13%. According to DSM-5, approximately 5 to 6% of schizophrenic patients die by suicide, but this is probably an underestimation. Often, suicide in schizophrenia seems to occur out of the blue, without prior warnings or expressions of verbal intent. The most crucial factor is the presence of a major depressive episode. Epidemiologic studies indicate that up to 80% of schizophrenia patients may have a major depressive episode at some time in their lives. Some data suggests that those patients with the best prognosis, few negative symptoms, preservation of capacity to experience effects, better abstract thinking, can paradoxically also be at the highest risk for suicide. The profile of the patient at most significant risk is a young man who once had high expectations, declined from a higher level of functioning, realizes that his dreams are not likely to come true, and has lost faith in the effectiveness of treatment. Other possible contributors to the high rate of suicide include command hallucinations and drug abuse. 
Two-thirds or more of schizophrenic patients who commit suicide have seen an unsuspecting clinician within 72 hours of death. A large pharmacologic study suggests that clozapine may have particular efficacy in reducing suicidal ideation in schizophrenia patients with prior hospitalizations for suicidality. Adjunctive antidepressant medications may be effective for alleviating co-occurring major depression in schizophrenia. Homicide. Despite the sensational attention that the news media provides when a patient with schizophrenia murders someone, the available data indicate that these patients are no more likely to commit homicide than as a member of the general population. When a patient with schizophrenia does commit homicide, it may be for unpredictable or bizarre reasons based on hallucinations or delusions. Possible predictors of homicidal activity are a history of previous violence, dangerous behavior while hospitalized, and hallucinations or delusions involving violence. The symptoms of schizophrenia can be divided into three groupings. We can divide the symptoms of schizophrenia into three groups, positive, negative, and cognitive. Positive symptoms are abnormal behaviors. Positive symptoms are symptoms that are present and usually observable. These are the symptoms associated with an acute psychotic episode and are primarily disorders of thought and presentation. They include hallucinations, delusions, and other bizarre behaviors. Table 5 to 1 lists examples of positive symptoms. Negative symptoms are the absence of normal behaviors. Negative symptoms are defined by their absence and sometimes also called deficit symptoms. They are commonly associated with the progression of the illness. These include the absence of affect, the absence of thought, the absence of motivation, the absence of pleasure, and the absence of attention. Table 5 to 2 lists examples of negative symptoms. Cognitive symptoms are impairments in normal cognitive functions. The cognitive symptoms of schizophrenia may be subtle, particularly early in the disease process, but are very impairing and account for much of the disability associated with this disorder. They include impairments of attention, working memory, and executive functioning. Table 5 to 1. Positive symptoms. Hallucinations. Auditory hallucinations. Voices commenting. Voices conversing. Somatic or tactile hallucinations. Olfactory hallucinations. Visual hallucinations. Delusions. Persecutory delusions. Delusions of jealousy. Delusions of guilt or sin. Grandiose delusions. Religious delusions. Somatic delusions. Delusions of reference. Delusions of being controlled. Delusions of mind reading. Thought broadcasting. Thought insertion. Thought withdrawal. Bizarre behavior. Clothing and behavior. Social and sexual behavior. Aggressive behavior. Repetitive or stereotyped behavior. Positive formal thought disorder. Derailment. Tangentiality. Incoherence. Illogicality. Circumstantiality. Pressure of speech. Distractible speech. Clanging. Presentation in special populations. The disorder in children and adolescents. A small minority of patients manifest schizophrenia in childhood. Such children may at first present diagnostic problems, particularly with differentiation from mental retardation and autistic disorder. Recent studies have established that we should base our diagnosis of childhood schizophrenia on the same symptoms used for adult schizophrenia. Its onset is usually insidious, its course tends to be chronic, and the prognosis is mostly unfavorable. The disorder in older people. Late-onset schizophrenia is clinically indistinguishable from schizophrenia but has an onset after age 45 years. This condition tends to appear more frequently in women and tends to be characterized by a predominance of paranoid symptoms. The prognosis is favorable, and these patients usually do well on antipsychotic medication. Table 5-2. Negative symptoms. Effective flattening or blunting. Unchanging facial expressions. Decreased spontaneous movement. Paucity of expressive gesture. Poor eye contact. Effective non-responsivity. Inappropriate effect. Lack of vocal inflections. Elogia. Poverty of speech. Poverty of content of speech. Blocking. Increased latency of response. Avolition. Apathy. 
Grooming and hygiene. Impersistence at work or school. Physical energia. Anhedonia. Asociality. Recreational interests and activities. Sexual interest and activities. Intimacy and closeness. Relationships with friends. Attention. Social inattentiveness. Inattentiveness during testing. Diagnosis. Schizophrenia. Table 5 to 3 compares the different approaches to diagnosing schizophrenia. The patient should have evidence of a psychotic disorder. However, the presence of hallucinations or delusions is not necessary for a diagnosis of schizophrenia. The patient's disorder is diagnosed as schizophrenia when the patient demonstrates any two of the several symptoms included under the broad category of psychotic symptoms. These symptoms should persist for an extended time, six months for DSM-5 and one month for ICD-10. The DSM-5 diagnostic criteria include course specifiers, i.e., prognosis, that offer clinicians several options and describe actual clinical situations. Catatonic type. The catatonic type of schizophrenia, which was prevalent several decades ago, has become rare in Europe and North America. The classic feature of the catatonic type is a marked disturbance in motor function. This disturbance may involve stupor, negativism, rigidity, excitement, or posturing. AC, age 32 years, was admitted to the hospital. On arrival, he was noted to be an asthenic, poorly nourished man with dilated pupils, hyperactive tendon reflexes, and a pulse rate of 120 beats per minute. He showed many mannerisms, laid down on the floor, pulled at his foot, made undirected violent striking movements, struck attendants, grimaced, assumed rigid and strange postures, refused to speak, and appeared to be having auditory hallucinations. When seen later in the day, he was found to be in a stuporous state. His face was without expression, he was mute and rigid, and he paid no attention to those about him or to their questions. His eyes were closed, and his eyelids could be separated only with effort. There was no response to pinpricks or other painful stimuli. He gradually became accessible, and when asked concerning himself, he referred to his stuporous period as sleep and maintained that he had no recollection of any events occurring during it. He said, I didn't know anything. Everything seemed to be dark as far as my mind is concerned. Then I began to see a little light, like the shape of a star. Then my head got through the star gradually. I saw more and more light until I saw everything in a perfect form a few days ago. He explained his mutism by saying that he had been afraid he would say the wrong thing, and that he didn't know exactly what to talk about. From his obviously inadequate emotional response and his statement that he was a scientist and an inventor of the most extraordinary genius of the 20th century, it was plain that he was still far from well. Adapted from case of Arthur P. Noyes, M.D., Lawrence C. Kolb, M.D. Table 5-3. Schizophrenia. DSM-5. ICD-10. Diagnostic name. Schizophrenia. Schizophrenia. Duration. Symptoms present continuously for at least 6 mo. Symptoms. Delusions. Hallucinations. Disorganization of speech. Disorganization of behavior or catatonia. Negative symptoms. Thought distortions. Perceptual disorders. Negative affect, often blunted. Possible cognitive dysfunction. Other possible symptoms. Thought echo. Thought insertion or withdrawal. Thought broadcasting. Delusional perception. Delusions of control, influence, or passivity. Hallucinatory voices. Disordered, disorganized thinking. Negative symptoms. Required number of symptoms is greater than or equal to two, including at least one of the first three listed. Defined by the first three listed, although the other symptoms are considered common. Psychosocial consequences of symptoms. Functional impairment. Exclusions, not better explained by. Substances. Other medical conditions. Other psychiatric conditions. Other neurologic diseases. Schizoaffective disorder. Epilepsy. Psychoactive substances. Symptom specifiers. With catatonia, define as presence of three or more of the following. Downpointing aero psychomotor activity, stupor. 
Catalepsy, holding a posture for an extended period. Waxy flexibility, hold a position but movable to a new posture as if made of wax. Mutism. Negativism. Posturing. Odd mannerisms. Stereotypic behaviors. Agitation. Grimacing. Echolalia, imitating another's speech. Echopraxia, imitating another's movements. Paranoid schizophrenia, primarily defined by delusions. Less or no disturbance of affect or volition. Hebophrenic schizophrenia, negative effect with inappropriate mood, social isolation and unpredictable behavior. Catatonic schizophrenia, psychomotor changes, such as posturing, odd mannerisms, affect, stupor versus agitation. Indifferentiated schizophrenia. Residual schizophrenia, chronic illness and cognitive changes resulting from a prolonged psychotic illness. Simple schizophrenia, slow progressive development of changes in behavior and functioning, effective blunting without preceding psychotic symptoms. Other schizophrenia. Schizophrenia unspecified. Course specifiers. First episode, currently in acute episode. First episode, currently in partial remission. Currently less symptoms in needed for diagnosis. First episode, currently in full remission, zero symptoms. Multiple episodes, currently in acute episode, is greater than or equal to two episodes. Multiple episodes, currently in partial remission. Multiple episodes, currently in full remission. Continuous. Unspecified. Sometimes the patient shows a rapid alternation between extremes of excitement and stupor. Associated features include stereotypies, mannerisms, and waxy flexibility. Mutism is particularly common. During catatonic excitement, patients need careful supervision to prevent them from hurting themselves or others. Patients also often require medical care because of malnutrition, exhaustion, hyperpyrexia, or self-inflicted injury. Subtypes from previous versions of DSM. Previous versions of the DSM described subtypes of schizophrenia based predominantly on the clinical features. These were, paranoid, disorganized, catatonic, indifferentiated, and residual subtype. DSM-5 no longer includes these as experts in the field frequently question their validity. ICD-10 does continue to include them. Although having some face validity for clinicians, they have only a weak relationship to biologic variables, poor long-term stability, and poor predictive value. Schizoaffective disorder. Schizoaffective disorder has features of both schizophrenia and mood disorders. In current diagnostic systems, patients can receive the diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder if they fit into one of the following six categories. 1 patients with schizophrenia who have mood symptoms, 2, patients with a mood disorder who have symptoms of schizophrenia, 3, patients with both mood disorder and schizophrenia, 4, patients with a third psychosis unrelated to schizophrenia and mood disorder, 5, patients whose disorder is on a continuum between schizophrenia and mood disorder, and 6, patients with some combination of the above. Clinicians frequently use a preliminary diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder when they are uncertain of the diagnosis. It remains unclear whether the disorder is a subtype of schizophrenia, a mood disorder, or the simultaneous expression of each. It is unlikely that this represents a simultaneous expression of both disorders, as it appears to be more common than would be expected for coincidental co-occurrence. Schizoaffective disorder may also be a third distinct type of psychosis, one that is unrelated to either schizophrenia or a mood disorder. The most likely possibility is that schizoaffective disorder is a heterogeneous group of disorders encompassing all of these possibilities. As will be discussed below, the genetic abnormalities in schizophrenia overlap with that for mood disorders, making an overlap between the disorders more likely. In the DSM-5 criteria for schizoaffective disorder, the clinician must accurately diagnose the mood disorder, making sure it meets the criteria of either a manic or depressive episode but also determining the exact length of each episode, not always easy or even possible. Table 5-4 compares the diagnostic approaches to schizoaffective disorder. The length of each episode is critical for two reasons. 
First, to meet the requirement that the psychotic symptoms must also occur independently of the mood symptoms, it is essential to know when the affective episode ends, and the psychosis continues. Second, the relative lengths of the mood and psychotic episodes should be roughly equal, which requires us to know the course of the episodes. Mrs. P is a 47-year-old, divorced, unemployed woman who lived alone and who experienced chronic psychotic symptoms despite treatment with olanzapine 20 mg per day and citalopram 20 mg per day. She believed that she was getting messages from God and the police department to go on a mission to fight against drugs. She also believed that an organized crime group was trying to stop her in this pursuit. The onset of her illness began at age 20 years when she experienced the first of several depressive episodes. She also described periods when she felt more energetic and talkative, had a decreased need for sleep, and was more active, sometimes cleaning her house throughout the night. About four years after the onset of her symptoms, she began to hear, voices, that became stronger when she was depressed but were still present and disturbed her even when her mood was euthymic. About ten years after her illness began, she developed the belief that policemen were everywhere and that the neighbors were spying on her. She was hospitalized voluntarily. Two years later, she had another depressive episode, and the auditory hallucinations told her she could not live in her apartment. She was tried on lithium, antidepressants, and antipsychotic medications but continued to be chronically symptomatic with mood symptoms as well as psychosis. Mrs. P demonstrates a classic presentation of schizoaffective disorder in which clear depressive and hypomanic episodes are present in combination with continuous psychotic illness and first-rank symptoms. Her course is typical of many individuals with schizoaffective disorder. Table 5 to 4. Schizoaffective disorder. DSM-5. ICD-10. Diagnostic name. Schizoaffective disorder. Schizoaffective disorders. Duration. Mood symptoms present majority of time during the illness. However, there is also a two-week period of psychotic symptoms without mood symptoms. Symptoms. Meets criteria for a major depressive or manic episode. Meets criteria for schizophrenia. Symptoms of affective episode and schizophrenic symptoms. Required number of symptoms. See criteria for the individual disorders. Psychosocial consequences of symptoms. Functional impairment. Exclusions, not better explained by. Substance use. Another mental illness. Another medical condition. Schizophrenia. Depressive, manic episodes. Symptom specifiers. Bipolar type, manic episode. Depressive type, depressive episode. With catatonia. See table 5 to 3 for catatonia symptoms. Schizoaffective disorder, manic type. Schizoaffective disorder, depressive type. Schizoaffective disorder, mixed type. Schizoaffective disorder, unspecified. Other schizoaffective disorder. Course specifiers. First episode, currently in acute episode. First episode, currently in partial remission. Currently less symptoms than needed for diagnosis. First episode, currently in full remission, zero symptoms. Multiple episodes, currently in acute episode, is greater than or equal to two episodes. Multiple episodes, currently in partial remission. Multiple episodes, currently in full remission. Continuous. Unspecified. Schizophreniform disorder. The symptoms of schizophreniform are similar to those of schizophrenia. However, with schizophreniform disorder, the symptoms are short-term, lasting at least one month but less than six months. Patients with schizophreniform disorder should then return to their baseline level of functioning. Like schizoaffective disorder, schizophreniform disorder appears to be a heterogeneous disorder. Many patients seem to have a disorder that is similar to schizophrenia, while others may have a disorder more like a mood disorder. Table 5 to 5 compares the diagnostic approaches to schizophreniform disorder. The disorder is an acute psychotic disorder with a rapid onset. It lacks a long prodromal phase. Although many patients with schizophreniform disorder may experience functional impairment at the time of an episode, they are unlikely to report a progressive decline in social and occupational functioning. 
The initial symptom profile is the same as for schizophrenia in that two or more psychotic symptoms must be present. By definition, patients with schizophreniform disorder have the symptoms for at least a month and return to their baseline state within six months. In some instances, the illness is episodic, with more than one episode occurring after long periods of full remission. If the combined duration of symptomatology exceeds six months, however, then schizophrenia should be considered. Mr. C., a 28-year-old accountant, was brought to the emergency department by the police in handcuffs. He was disheveled and shouted and struggled with the police officers. It was apparent that he was hearing voices because he would respond to them with shouts such as, Shut up! I told you I won't do it! However, when confronted about the voices, he denied hearing anything. Mr. C. had a hypervigilant stare and jumped at the slightest noise. He stated that he must run away quickly because he knew he would be killed shortly otherwise. Mr. C. was functioning well until two months before hospitalization. He was an accountant at a prestigious company and had close friends at a live-in girlfriend. Most people who knew him would describe him as friendly, but he was occasionally quarrelsome. When his girlfriend suddenly broke off the relationship and moved out of their apartment, Mr. C. was distressed. However, he was convinced that he could win her back, so he began to accidentally run into her at her job or her new apartment with flowers and various gifts. When she strongly told him that she wanted nothing more to do with him and requested that he leave her alone, Mr. C. was convinced that she wanted him dead. He became so preoccupied with this notion that his work began to suffer. Out of fear for his life, Mr. C. took off from work frequently, and when he did report to work, he was often tardy and did subpar work, making many errors. His supervisor confronted Mr. C. about his behavior, threatening termination if it continued. Mr. C. was embarrassed and resented his supervisor for the confrontation. He believed that his ex-girlfriend had hired the supervisor to kill him. His beliefs were confirmed by a voice that would mock him. The voice told him time and again that he should quit his job, relocate to another city, and forget about his ex-girlfriend, but Mr. C. refused, believing it would give them more satisfaction than they deserved. He continued working, albeit cautiously, all the while fearing for his life. Through it all, Mr. C. believed himself to be the lone victim. He would awake abruptly at night from nightmares but would be able to fall right back to sleep. He had not lost any weight and had no other vegetative symptoms. His affect alternated between rage and terror. His mind was unusually alert and active, but he was not otherwise hyperactive, excessively energetic, or expansive. He did not display any formal thought disorder. Mr. C. was hospitalized and treated with antipsychotic medication. His symptoms remitted after several weeks of treatment, and he was well and able to return to work shortly after discharge. Table 5 to 5. Schizophreniform Disorder. DSM-5. ICD-10. Diagnostic Name. Schizophreniform Disorder. Acute and Transient Psychotic Disorder. Duration. Is greater than or equal to 1 mo, but less than 6 mo. Less than 1 mo on average. Symptoms. Same as schizophrenia, see Table 5 to 3. Symptoms of schizophrenia, including thought echo, thought insertion or withdrawal, thought broadcasting, delusional perception, delusions of control, influence, or passivity, hallucinatory voices, disordered, disorganized thinking, negative symptoms, may or may not be associated with polymorphic, unstable, frequently changing, delusions, hallucinations and or behavioral symptoms. Required number of symptoms. Same as schizophrenia, see Table 5 to 3. Exclusions, not better explained by. Same as schizophrenia, see table 5 to 3. If symptoms persist, diagnosis should be changed to schizophrenia. Symptom specifiers. With catatonia, see table 5 to 3 for catatonia symptoms. Course specifiers. With good prognostic features. Is greater than or equal to two of following. Psychotic symptoms within four week of initial behavioral changes. Confusion. Good premorbid function. No negative symptoms. Without good prognostic features. 
perhaps 60-80% to of patients with this disorder will later develop schizophrenia. The remaining may have relapses of similar time-limited episodes of the disease, whereas some, although unfortunately only a few patients, will have only a single episode. Brief Psychotic Disorder Brief psychotic disorder is defined as a psychotic condition that involves a sudden onset of psychotic symptoms, which lasts one day or more but less than one month. Remission is full, and the individual returns to the premorbid level of functioning. Brief psychotic disorder is an acute and transient psychotic syndrome. The exact incidence and prevalence of brief psychotic disorder is not known, but it is generally considered uncommon. The disorder occurs more often among younger patients, 20s and 30s, than among older patients. Brief psychotic disorder is more common in women than in men. Such epidemiologic patterns are sharply distinct from those of schizophrenia. Some clinicians indicate that the disorder may be seen most frequently in patients from low socioeconomic classes and in those who have experienced disasters or major cultural changes, e.g., immigrants. The age of onset in industrialized settings may be higher than in developing countries. Table 5 to 6 compares the diagnostic approaches to brief psychotic disorder. The cause of the disorder is not known, however it is common in patients with personality disorders. Persons who have gone through major psychosocial stressors may be at greater risk for subsequent brief psychotic disorder. The symptoms of brief psychotic disorder always include at least one major symptom of psychosis, such as hallucinations, delusions, and disorganized thoughts, usually with an abrupt onset, but do not always include the entire symptom pattern seen in schizophrenia. Some clinicians have observed that labile mood, confusion, and impaired attention may be more common at the onset of brief psychotic disorder than at the onset of eventually chronic psychotic disorders. Characteristic symptoms in brief psychotic disorder include emotional volatility, strange or bizarre behavior, screaming or muteness, and impaired memory of recent events. Some of the symptoms suggest a diagnosis of delirium and war in a medical workup, especially to rule out adverse reactions to drugs. Table 5 to 6. Brief Psychotic Disorder. DSM-5. ICD-10. Diagnostic Name. Brief Psychotic Disorder. See Table 5 to 5 Definition of Acute and Transient Psychotic Disorder. ICD-10 does not distinguish between these two disorders. Duration. Is greater than or equal to one day, less than one mo with return to baseline. Symptoms. Same as for schizophrenia, see table 5 to 3, except negative symptoms not included. Required number of symptoms. One of first three symptoms, delusions, hallucinations or disorganized speech, plus or minus behavioral symptoms. Exclusions, not better explained by. Culturally sanctioned response, behavior. Another mental illness. Substance use. Another medical condition. Symptom specifiers. With marked stressors. Without marked stressors. With catatonia. See Table 5 to 3 for catatonia symptoms. Course specifiers. With peripartum onset. During pregnancy or as less than or equal to 4 week after delivery. A 20-year-old man was admitted to the psychiatric ward of a hospital shortly after starting military duty. During the first week after his arrival to the military base, he thought the other recruits looked at him in a strange way. He watched the people around him to see whether they were out, to get him. He heard voices calling his name several times. He became increasingly suspicious and after another week had to be admitted for psychiatric evaluation. There he was guarded, scowling, skeptical, and depressed. He gave the impression of being very shy and inhibited. His psychotic symptoms disappeared rapidly when he was treated with an antipsychotic drug. However, he had difficulties in adjusting to hospital life. Transfer to a long-term medical hospital was considered, but after three months, a decision was made to discharge him to his home. He was subsequently judged unfit to return to military services. The patient was the eldest of five siblings. His father was an intemperate drinker who became angry and brutal when drunk. The family was poor, and there were constant fights between the parents. As a child, the patient was inhibited and fearful and often ran into the woods when troubled. He had academic difficulties. 
When the patient got older, he preferred to spend time alone and disliked being with people. He occasionally took part in local parties. Although he was never a heavy drinker, he often got into fights when he had a drink or two. The patient was re-interviewed by hospital personnel at 4 years, 7 years, and 23 years after his admission. He has had no recurrences of any psychotic symptoms and has been fully employed since 6 months after he left the hospital. He married, and at the last follow-up, he had two grown children. After leaving the hospital, the patient worked for two years in a factory. For the past 20 years, he has managed a small business, and it has run well. He has been very happy at work and in his family life. He has made an effort to overcome his tendency toward isolation and has several friends. The patient believes that his natural tendency is to be socially isolated and that his disorder was connected with the fact that in the military, he was forced to deal with other people. Adapted from Laura J. Folkman, M.D., Ramin Mojtabai, M.D., Ph.D., M.Ph., and Evelyn J. Bromit, Ph.D. Delusional Disorder The diagnosis of delusional disorder is made when a person exhibits one or more delusions of at least one month's duration that cannot be attributed to other psychiatric disorders. The delusions are often non-bizarre, meaning that the delusions are about situations that can occur in real life, such as being followed, infected, loved at a distance, and so on. That is, they usually have to do with phenomena that, although not real, are nonetheless possible. Several types of delusions may be present. Table 5 to 7 compares the diagnostic approaches to delusional disorder. Patients are usually well-groomed and well-dressed, without evidence of gross disintegration of personality or of daily activities, yet they may seem eccentric, odd, suspicious, or hostile. They are sometimes litigious and may make this inclination clear to the examiner. The most remarkable feature of patients with delusional disorder is that the mental status examination shows them to be quite normal except for a markedly abnormal delusional system. Patients may attempt to engage clinicians as allies in their delusions, but a clinician should not pretend to accept the delusion. This collusion further confounds reality and sets the stage for eventual distrust between the patient and the therapist. Table 5 to 7. Delusional Disorder. DSM-5. ICD-10. Diagnostic name. Delusional disorder. Delusional disorder. Duration. Is greater than or equal to 1 mo. Symptoms. Delusions, see symptom specifiers for examples. Delusions. Persistent. Plus or minus hallucinations. Required number of symptoms. Is greater than or equal to 1. Is greater than or equal to 1 delusions. Psychosocial consequences of symptoms. No marked functional impairment. Exclusions, not better explained by. Schizophrenia. Another medical condition. Substance use. Another mental illness. Personality disorder. Psychosis. Psychogenic reaction. Schizophrenia. Symptom specifiers. Erotomanic type. Grandiose type. Jealous type. Persecutory type. Somatic type. Mixed type. Unspecified type. With bizarre content. If not related to reality or life experience or not possible, include this specifier. Course specifiers. First episode, currently in acute episode. First episode, currently in partial remission, currently less symptoms than needed for diagnosis. First episode, currently in full remission, zero symptoms. Multiple episodes, currently in acute episode, is greater than or equal to two episodes. Multiple episodes, currently in partial remission. Multiple episodes, currently in full remission. Continuous. Unspecified. Patients' moods are consistent with the content of their delusions. A patient with grandiose delusions is euphoric, one with persecutory delusions is suspicious. Whatever the nature of the delusional system, the examiner may sense some mild depressive qualities. By definition, patients with delusional disorder do not have prominent or sustained hallucinations. A few delusional patients have other hallucinatory experiences, virtually always auditory rather than visual. They also have generally normal cognition apart from their delusion. 
The disorders can be of several types, and in the diagnosis the clinician should specify the type. The types include persecutory, believing others are trying to harm them, jealous, believing that a lover or partner is unfaithful, erotomanic, believing that another person, often of higher status, is in love with them, somatic, believing the person has some physical disorder, and grandiose, a delusion of grandeur. There is also a mixed and unspecified type, for delusions that are a combination of types are not described by one of the categories. Of these types, persecutory and jealous are probably the most common. Mrs. S., a 62-year-old woman, was referred to a psychiatrist because of reports of being unable to sleep. She had previously worked full-time taking care of children, and she played tennis almost every day and managed her household chores. However, she had now become preoccupied with the idea that her downstairs neighbor was doing a variety of things to harass her and wanted to get her to move away. At first, Mrs. S. based her belief on certain looks that he gave her and damage done to her mailbox, but later she felt he might be leaving empty bottles of cleaning solutions in the basement so she would be overcome by fumes. As a result, the patient was fearful of falling asleep, convinced that she might be asphyxiated and unable to awaken in time to get help. She felt somewhat depressed and thought her appetite might be decreased from the stress of being harassed. However, she had not lost weight and still enjoyed playing tennis and going out with friends. At one point she considered moving to another apartment but then decided to fight back. The episode had gone on for eight months when her daughter persuaded her to have a psychiatric assessment. In the interview, Mrs. S. was pleasant and cooperative. Except for mild depressive symptoms and the specific delusion about being harassed by her neighbor, her mental status was normal. Mrs. S. had a past history of depression 30 years before, which followed the death of a close friend. She saw a counselor for several months and found this helpful, but she was not treated with medication. For the current episode, she agreed to take medications, although she believed her neighbor was more in need of treatment than she was. Her symptoms improved somewhat with risperidone 2 mg at bedtime and clonazepam 0. MG every morning and at bedtime. This patient presented with a single delusion regarding her neighbor that was within the realm of possibility, i.e., not bizarre. Other areas of her functioning were normal. Although mild depressive symptoms were present, she did not meet criteria for major depressive disorder. Her prior symptoms of depression appeared to be related to a normal bereavement reaction and had not required pharmacotherapy or hospitalization. Thus, her current presentation is one of delusional disorder, persecutory type and not major depressive disorder with psychotic features. In terms of treatment, the ability to create a working alliance with the patient, avoiding the discussion of the veracity of her delusion, and focusing on her anxiety, depression, and difficulty falling asleep enabled her psychiatrist to introduce the medications with beneficial results. Courtesy of Laura J. Folkman, M.D., Ramin Mojtabai, M.D., Ph.D., M.P.H., and Evelyn J. Bromit, Ph.D. Mr. M. was a 51-year-old married white man who lived with his wife in their own home and who worked full-time driving a sanitation truck. Before his hospitalization, he became concerned that his wife was having an affair. He began to follow her, kept notes on his observations, and badgered her constantly about this, often waking her up in the middle of the night to make accusations. Shortly before admission, these arguments led to physical violence, and he was brought to the hospital by police. In addition to concerns about his wife's fidelity, Mr. M reported feelings of depression over his wife's betrayal of their marriage vows, but he noted no changes in sleep, appetite, or work-related functioning. He was treated with a low dose of an antipsychotic medication and described being less concerned about his wife's behavior. After discharge, he remained on medications and was seen by a psychiatrist monthly, but 10 years later, he continued to believe that his wife was unfaithful. His wife noted that he sometimes became upset about the delusion but that he had not become aggressive or required readmission. This patient experienced a fixed, encapsulated delusion of jealousy that did not interfere with his other activities and that showed a partial response to antipsychotic medications. Although he initially reported feeling somewhat depressed over his wife's perceived infidelity, he did not have other symptoms suggestive of a major depressive episode. 
Courtesy of Laura J. Folkman, M.D., Ramin Mojtabai, M.D., Ph.D., M.Ph., and Evelyn J. Bromit, Ph.D. Little is known about the epidemiology of delusional disorder as it is rare, and as, likely, a heterogeneous group of disorders that manifest as delusions. Despite many theories, the causes are not known. Many patients with the disorder can function well in society and never come to psychiatric attention. Psychiatrists may only meet them when they are evaluating them for another disorder, such as major depressive disorder. Other times, a physician may request a psychiatric consult for a patient they are evaluating for some other medical disorder and notice some odd responses. The disorder appears to be stable over time. Although reliable data are limited, patients with persecutory, somatic, and erotomanic delusions are thought to have a better prognosis than patients with grandiose and jealous delusions. Other psychotic disorders. Patients may present with psychotic symptoms that are not easily described by one of the psychotic disorders. Some examples include patients with persistent auditory hallucination but no other symptoms, or delusions that present with significant mood symptoms. In some cases a clinician may consider the symptoms that seem psychotic to be so minor as not to deserve a diagnosis of a typical disorder. These can include very transient symptoms or presentations where the patient seems to have full insight into their delusions or hallucinations. One pattern of psychosis that deserves mention is the presence of delusional symptoms in a partner of an individual with delusional disorder, commonly called, shared psychosis, or foley ader. It is probably rare, but incidence and prevalence figures are lacking, and the literature consists almost entirely of case reports. The disorder is characterized by the transfer of delusions from one person to another. Both persons are closely associated for a long time and typically live together in relative social isolation. In its most common form, and the one recognized in DSM-5, the individual who first has the delusion, the primary case, is often chronically ill and typically is the influential member of a close relationship with a more suggestible person, the secondary case, who also develops the delusion. The person in the secondary case is frequently less intelligent, more gullible, more passive, or more lacking in self-esteem than the person in the primary case. If the pair separates, the secondary person may abandon the delusion, but this outcome is not seen uniformly. The occurrence of the delusion is attributed to the strong influence of the more dominant member. Old age, low intelligence, sensory impairment, cerebrovascular disease, and alcohol abuse are among the factors associated with this peculiar form of psychotic disorder. A genetic predisposition to idiopathic psychoses has also been suggested as a possible risk factor. Other special forms have been reported, such as Foley simultanee, in which two persons become psychotic simultaneously and share the same delusion. Occasionally, more than two individuals are involved, e.g., Foley a trois, Catra, Sink, also Foley a familia but such cases are especially rare. The most common relationships in shared psychotic disorder are sister-ister, husband and motherhold, but other combinations have also been described. Almost all cases involve members of a single family. A 52-year-old man was referred by the court for inpatient psychiatric examination, charged with disturbing the peace. He had been arrested for disrupting a trial, complaining of harassment by various judges. He had walked into a courtroom, marched to the bench, and begun to berate the probate judge. While in the hospital, he related a detailed account of conspiratorial goings-on in the local judiciary. A target of certain judges, he claimed he had been singled out for a variety of reasons for many years. He knew what was going on. He had kept records of wrongdoings, and he understood the significance of the whole matter. He refused to elaborate on the specific nature of the conspiracy. He had responded to it with frequent letters to newspapers, the local bar association, and even to a congressional subcommittee. His mental state, apart from his story and a mildly depressed mood, was entirely normal. A family interview revealed that his wife and several grown children shared the belief in a judicial conspiracy directed against the patient. There was no change in delusional thinking in the patient or the family after 10 days of observation. The patient refused follow-up. In this case, protection is provided by others who share the delusion and believe in the reasonableness of the response, 
such cases are uncommon, if not rare. Courtesy of T.C. Manshrek, M.D. Objective tests for the disorder. Schizophrenia and the other psychotic disorders remain clinical diagnoses and no tests are sensitive or specific enough for diagnostic purposes. Most tests, such as serologic testing, are mainly used to rule out other causes of psychosis, such as syphilis or anti-N-methyl-D-aspartate receptor encephalitis. However, some tests are abnormal on average when comparing groups of patients with schizophrenia to patients without the disorder. Examples include computerized electroencephalogram, EEG, which show differences in event-related potentials. Diagnostic and rating scales for schizophrenia. Several diagnostic interviews and rating scales exist for schizophrenia. Some are useful for diagnosing the disorder, although they are mainly used in research settings. Most scales measure the outcomes of various interventions, not the presence of a diagnosis. They focus on measuring clinical symptoms associated with the disorder. These include the positive and negative syndrome scale, positive and negative symptom scale, and the brief psychiatric rating scale, BPRS, both of which can track the significant symptoms of the disorder. We can assess for extrapyramidal symptoms with a variety of instruments, but the Simpson-Angus scale, SAS, the Abnormal Involuntary Movement Scale, AIMS, and barnes Akathisia Rating Scale, BARS, are most common. Psychological Testing Patients with schizophrenia generally perform poorly on a wide range of neuropsychological tests. Vigilance, memory, and concept formation are most affected and consistent with pathologic involvement in the frontotemporal cortex. Objective measures of neuropsychological performance, such as the Halstead-Aiton battery and the Luria-Brasca battery, often give abnormal findings, such as bilateral frontal and temporal lobe dysfunction, including impairments in attention, retention time, and problem-solving ability. Motor ability is also impaired, possibly related to brain asymmetry. Intelligence tests. When comparing groups of patients with schizophrenia with groups of psychiatric patients without schizophrenia or from the general population, schizophrenia patients tend to score lower on intelligence tests. Statistically, the evidence suggests that low intelligence is often present at the onset, and intelligence may continue to deteriorate with the progression of the disorder. Projective and personality tests. Projective tests, such as the Rorschach test and the thematic apperception test, may indicate bizarre ideation. Personality inventories, such as the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, often give abnormal results in schizophrenia, but the contribution to diagnosis and treatment planning is minimal. Differential diagnosis for psychotic disorders. Secondary psychotic disorders. A wide range of non-psychiatric medical conditions and a variety of substances can induce symptoms of psychosis and catatonia, table 5 to 8. The most appropriate diagnosis for such symptoms is a psychotic disorder due to a general medical condition, catatonic disorder due to a general medical condition, or substance-induced psychotic disorder. When evaluating a patient with psychotic symptoms, clinicians should follow the general guidelines for assessing non-psychiatric conditions. First, clinicians should aggressively pursue an undiagnosed non-psychiatric medical condition when a patient exhibits any unusual or rare symptoms or any variation in the level of consciousness. Second, clinicians should attempt to obtain a complete family history, including a history of medical, neurologic, and psychiatric disorders. Third, clinicians should consider the possibility of a non-psychiatric medical condition, even in patients with previous diagnoses of schizophrenia. A patient with schizophrenia is just as likely to have a brain tumor that produces psychotic symptoms, as is a patient without schizophrenia. Table 5 to 8. Potential medical etiologies of delusional syndromes. Disease or disorder class. Examples. Neurodegenerative disorders. Alzheimer disease, PIC disease, Huntington disease, basal ganglia calcification, multiple sclerosis, metachromatic leukodystrophy. Other central nervous system disorders. Brain tumors, especially temporal lobe and deep hemispheric tumors, epilepsy, especially complex partial seizure disorder, head trauma, subdural hematoma, anoxic brain injury, fat embolism, vascular disease. 
aterosclerotic vascular disease, especially when associated with diffuse, temporoparietal, or subcortical lesions, hypertensive encephalopathy, subarachnoid hemorrhage, temporal arteritis. Infectious disease. HIIV, AIDS encephalitis lethargica, Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, syphilis, malaria, acute viral encephalitis. Metabolic disorder. Hypercalcemia, hyponatremia, hypoglycemia, uremia, hepatic encephalopathy, porphyria. Endocrinopathies. Addison disease, Cushing syndrome, hyper or hypothyroidism, panhypopituitarism. Vitamin deficiencies. Vitamin B12 deficiency, folate deficiency, thiamine deficiency, niacin deficiency. Medications. Adrenocorticotropic hormones, anabolic steroids, corticosteroids, cimetidine, antibiotics, cephalosporins, penicillin, disulfiram, anticholinergic agents. Substances. Amphetamines, cocaine, alcohol, cannabis, hallucinogens. Toxins. Mercury, arsenic, manganese, thallium. Mood disorders. A patient with a major depressive episode may present with delusions and hallucinations, as can a patient with bipolar disorder. Delusions seen with psychotic depression are typically mood congruent and involve themes such as guilt, self-depreciation, deserved punishment, and incurable illnesses. In mood disorders, psychotic symptoms resolve entirely with the resolution of depression. A depressive episode that is this severe may also result in loss of functioning, a decline in self-care, and social isolation, but these are secondary to the depressive symptoms and should not be confused with the negative symptoms of schizophrenia. A full-blown manic episode often presents with delusions and sometimes hallucinations. Delusions and mania are most often mood-congruent and typically involve grandiose themes. The flight of ideas seen in mania may, at times, be confused with the thought disorder of schizophrenia. Special attention during the mental status examination of a patient with a flight of ideas is required to note whether the associative links between topics are conserved. However, the conversation is awkward for the observer to follow because of the patient's accelerated rate of thinking. Personality disorders. Various personality disorders may have some features of schizophrenia. Schizotypal, schizoid, and borderline personality disorders are personality disorders with several overlapping symptoms. A severe obsessive-compulsive personality disorder may mask an underlying schizophrenic process. Personality disorders, unlike schizophrenia, have mild symptoms and a history of occurring throughout a patient's life. They also lack an identifiable date of onset. Malingering and factitious disorders. For a patient who imitates the symptoms of schizophrenia but does not have the disorder, either malingering or factitious disorder may be an appropriate diagnosis. Although truly mimicking the symptoms of schizophrenia is difficult, especially in front of an experienced clinician, persons have faked schizophrenic symptoms and have been admitted into and treated at psychiatric hospitals. The condition of patients who are entirely in control of their symptom production may qualify for a diagnosis of malingering. Such patients usually have some apparent financial or legal reason to want to be considered mentally ill. The condition of patients who are less in control of their falsification of psychotic symptoms may qualify for a diagnosis of factitious disorder. Some patients with schizophrenia, however, may falsely complain of an exacerbation of psychotic symptoms to obtain increased assistance benefits or to gain admission to a hospital. Comorbidity. Substance use disorders. Comorbid substance use disorders in patients with schizophrenia are widespread, with a lifetime prevalence of 74%. Tobacco, alcohol, cannabis, and cocaine use disorders are most common, and almost half of the patients with schizophrenia will have a severe problem with drugs or alcohol during their lifetime. The link between the two disorders is not clear, and experts in the field have proposed several explanations. The diathesis stress model suggests that a biologically vulnerable person, when encountering external stress, of which a substance may be one, is more likely to develop schizophrenia. The self-medication hypothesis suggests that patients use substances to lessen their symptoms or side effects. 
The shared vulnerability model suggests that both schizophrenia and substance use disorders share a common etiology and pathology. More research is required. However, the available evidence supports a shared vulnerability, in which a shared genetic risk or environmental insult leads to dysfunctions in specific key circuits, such as reward pathways. The result is the increased use of substances during adolescence, as well as the development of schizophrenia. Complex partial epilepsy. Schizophrenia-like psychoses occur more frequently than expected in patients with complex partial seizures, especially seizures involving the temporal lobes. Factors associated with the development of psychosis in these patients include a left-sided seizure focus, medial temporal location of the lesion, and an early onset of seizures. Some psychotic symptoms are similar to symptoms of patients with complex partial epilepsy and may reflect the presence of a temporal lobe disorder when seen in patients with schizophrenia. Obesity. Patients with schizophrenia appear to be more obese, with higher body mass indexes, BMIs, than age and gender matched cohorts in the general population. This obesity is due, at least in part, to the effect of many antipsychotic medications, as well as poor nutritional balance and decreased motor activity. This weight gain, in turn, contributes to an increased risk of cardiovascular morbidity and mortality, an increased risk of diabetes, and other obesity-related conditions such as hyperlipidemia and obstructive sleep apnea. Diabetes mellitus. Schizophrenia is associated with an increased risk of type 2 diabetes mellitus. This comorbidity is probably due, in part, to the association with obesity noted above, but there is also evidence that some antipsychotic medications cause diabetes through a direct mechanism. Cardiovascular disease. Many antipsychotic medications have direct effects on cardiac electrophysiology. Also, obesity, increased rates of smoking, diabetes, and hyperlipidemia, and a sedentary lifestyle all independently increase the risk of cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. HIV. Patients with schizophrenia appear to have a risk of HIV infection that is 1 to 2 times that of the general population. This association is likely due to increased risk behaviors, such as unprotected sex, multiple partners, and increased drug use. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Rates of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease are increased in schizophrenia compared with the general population. The increased prevalence of smoking is a prominent contributor to this problem. It is not clear whether this is the only one. Rheumatoid arthritis. Patients with schizophrenia have a reduced risk of rheumatoid arthritis than is found in the general population. Researchers have replicated this inverse association several times, the significance of which is unknown. GWAS studies also indicate negative genetic correlations, suggesting that they may have shared pathogenesis but differential risks. The exact nature of this relationship remains a mystery and is an ongoing subject of investigation. Course. Onset of schizophrenia. Premorbid signs and symptoms. In theoretical formulations of the course of schizophrenia, premorbid signs and symptoms appear before the prodromal phase of the illness. The differentiation implies that premorbid signs and symptoms exist before the disease process evidences itself and that the prodromal signs and symptoms are parts of the evolving disorder. In the typical, but not invariable, premorbid history of schizophrenia, patients had schizoid or schizotypal personalities characterized as quiet, passive, and introverted. As children, they had few friends. Pre-schizophrenic adolescents may have no close friends and no dates and may avoid team sports. They may enjoy watching movies and television, listening to music, or playing computer games to the exclusion of social activities. Some adolescent patients may show a sudden onset of obsessive-compulsive behavior as part of the prodromal picture. A premorbid pattern of symptoms may be the first evidence of illness, although the importance of the symptoms is usually recognized only retrospectively. Nevertheless, although the family members often believe the disorder began with the first hospitalization, signs and symptoms have often been present for months or even years. The signs may have started with complaints about somatic symptoms, such as headache, back and muscle pain, weakness, and digestive problems. The initial diagnosis may be malingering, chronic fatigue syndrome, or somatic symptom disorder. 
Family and friends may eventually notice that the person has changed and is no longer functioning well in occupational, social, and personal activities. During this stage, a patient may begin to develop an interest in abstract ideas, philosophy, and the occult or religious questions, figure 5 to 1. Additional prodromal signs and symptoms can include markedly peculiar behavior, abnormal affect, unusual speech, bizarre ideas, and strange perceptual experiences. Emergence of symptoms. Characteristically, the symptoms begin in adolescence and are followed by the development of prodromal symptoms in days to a few months. Social or environmental changes, such as going away to college, using a substance, or a relative's death, may precipitate the disturbing symptoms, and the prodromal syndrome may last a year or more before the onset of overt psychotic symptoms. Duration. The classic course of schizophrenia is one of exacerbations and remissions. After the first psychotic episode, a patient gradually recovers and may then function relatively normally for a long time. Patients usually relapse, however, and the pattern of illness during the first five years after the diagnosis generally indicates the patient's course. Further deterioration in the patient's baseline functioning follows each relapse of psychosis. This failure to return to baseline functioning after each relapse was historically thought to be the primary distinction between schizophrenia and mood disorders. Sometimes a clinically observable post-psychotic depression follows a psychotic episode, and the schizophrenia patient's vulnerability to stress is usually lifelong. Positive symptoms tend to become less severe with time, but the socially debilitating negative or deficit symptoms may increase in severity. Figure 5 to 1 Schizophrenia Patient Schema this illustrates his fragmented, abstract, and overly inclusive thinking and preoccupation with religious ideologies and mathematical proofs. Courtesy of Heinz E. Lehman. An unmarried man, 27 years old, was brought to the mental hospital because he had on several occasions become violent toward his father. For a few weeks, he had hallucinations and heard voices. The voices eventually ceased, but he then adopted a strange way of life. He would sit up all night, sleep all day, and become very angry when his father tried to get him out of bed. He did not shave or wash for weeks, smoked continuously, ate very irregularly, and drank enormous quantities of tea. In the hospital, he adjusted rapidly to the new environment and was found to be generally cooperative. He showed no marked abnormalities of mental state or behavior, except for his lack of concern for just about anything. He kept to himself as much as possible and conversed little with patients or staff. His personal hygiene had to be supervised by the nursing staff. Otherwise, he would quickly become dirty and untidy. Six years after his admission to the hospital, he is described as shiftless and careless, sullen and unreasonable. He lies on a couch all day long. Although many efforts have been made to get the patient to accept therapeutic work assignments, he refuses to consider any kind of regular occupation. In the summer, he wanders about the hospital grounds or lies under a tree. In the winter, he wanders through the tunnels connecting the various hospital buildings and is often seen stretched out for hours under the warm pipes that carry the steam through the tunnels. Courtesy of Heinz E. Lehman, M.D. Although about one-third of all schizophrenia patients have some marginal or integrated social existence, most have lives characterized by aimlessness, inactivity, frequent hospitalizations, and, in urban settings, homelessness and poverty. Other Disorders Schizoaffective Disorder The course of schizoaffective disorder is intermediate between schizophrenia and mood disorders, with a better course in prognosis than for schizophrenia and a worse one than for bipolar disorder or major depressive disorder. Schizophreniform Disorder Patients with schizophreniform disorder who do not develop schizophrenia have a better outcome than do patients with schizophrenia. Prognosis. Having a diagnosis of schizophrenia is associated with a reduction of life expectancy by as much as 20%. Persons with schizophrenia have a higher mortality rate from accidents and natural causes than the general population. Institution or treatment-related variables do not explain the increased mortality rate. However, the higher rate may be related to the fact that the diagnosis and treatment of medical and surgical conditions in schizophrenia patients can be clinical challenges, and in some cases, clinical neglect may be a factor. 
Reported remission rates range from 10 to 60%, and a reasonable estimate is that 20 to 30% of all schizophrenia patients can lead somewhat normal lives. About 20 to 30% of patients continue to experience moderate symptoms, and 40 to 60% of patients remain significantly impaired by their disorder for their entire lives. Patients with schizophrenia do much poorer than patients with mood disorders, although 20 to 25% of mood disorder patients are also severely disturbed at long-term follow-up. Prognostic indicators. Several studies have shown that over the 5 to 10-year period after the first psychiatric hospitalization for schizophrenia, only about 10 to 20% of patients can be described as having a good outcome. More than 50% of patients can be described as having a poor outcome, with repeated hospitalizations, exacerbations of symptoms, episodes of major mood disorders, and suicide attempts. Despite these glum figures, schizophrenia does not always run a deteriorating course, and several factors have been associated with a good prognosis, Table 5 to 9. Table 5 to 9. Positive and negative prognostic factors for schizophrenia. Positive prognostic factors. Acute onset. Female sex. Living in a developed country. Poor prognostic factors. Insidious onset. Childhood or adolescent onset. Poor premorbid functioning. Cognitive impairment. Negative symptoms are rare for schizophreniform disorder, but when they occur, they are considered a poor prognostic feature, and many patients with negative symptoms will later develop schizophrenia. Treatment approach. Although antipsychotic medications are the mainstay of the treatment for schizophrenia, research has found that psychosocial interventions, including psychotherapy, can augment clinical improvement. The complexity of schizophrenia usually renders any single therapeutic approach inadequate to deal with the multifaceted disorder. Psychosocial modalities should be integrated into the drug treatment regimen and should support it. Patients with schizophrenia benefit more from the combined use of antipsychotic drugs and psychosocial treatment than from either treatment used alone. Hospitalization. The development of effective antipsychotic drugs and changes in political and popular attitudes toward the treatment and the rights of persons who are mentally ill have dramatically changed the patterns of hospitalization for schizophrenia patients since the mid-1950s. Despite these changes, readmissions after the first hospitalization are frequent, perhaps 40-60% to within two years. Patients with schizophrenia occupy about 50% of all psychiatric hospital beds and account for about 16% of all psychiatric patients who receive any treatment. In current practice, hospitalization is indicated for diagnostic purposes, for stabilization of medications, for patient safety because of suicidal or homicidal ideation, and for grossly disorganized or inappropriate behavior, including the inability to take care of basic needs such as food, clothing, and shelter. Establishing an active association between patients and community support systems is also a primary goal of hospitalization. Short stays of four to six weeks are just as effective as long-term hospitalizations, and hospital settings with active behavioral approaches produce better results than do custodial institutions. Hospital treatment plans should orient toward practical issues of self-care, quality of life, employment, and social relationships. During hospitalization, clinicians should coordinate with aftercare facilities, including family homes, foster families, board and care homes, and halfway houses. Daycare centers and home visits by therapists or nurses can help patients remain out of the hospital for long periods and can improve the quality of their daily lives. Pharmacotherapy. Patients usually first present for the treatment of acute psychotic symptoms, which require immediate attention. Treatment during the acute phase focuses on alleviating the most severe psychotic symptoms. This phase usually lasts from four to eight weeks. Antipsychotic medications are considered the mainstay of treatment, both in the acute and maintenance phases of the illness. Table 5 to 10 lists the second generation and commonly used first generation antipsychotics. Most guidelines recommend starting with a second generation antipsychotic. Although they are likely the most effective for patients with severe symptoms, and predominantly positive symptoms, they are useful across a broad range of symptoms and severity. There is little guidance for choosing a specific medication. Some studies suggest they have individual differences in efficacy. 
However, the most significant difference between the drugs is in their side effects, and we should consider these carefully when choosing a treatment. Agitation is a typical symptom in the acute phase. Clinicians have several options for managing agitation that results from psychosis. Antipsychotics and benzodiazepines can result in a relatively rapid calming of patients. With highly agitated patients, intramuscular administration of antipsychotics produces a more rapid effect. An advantage of an antipsychotic is that a single intramuscular injection of a first or second generation antipsychotic can often calm the patient without excessive sedation. Low potency antipsychotics are often associated with sedation and postural hypotension, mainly when administering them intramuscularly. Intramuscular zapracidone and olanzapine are similar to their oral counterparts in not causing substantial extrapyramidal side effects during acute treatment. This can be a significant advantage over haloperidol or fluphenazine, which can cause frightening dystonias or akathisia in some patients. A rapidly dissolving oral formulation of olanzapine may also be helpful as an alternative to an intramuscular injection. Benzodiazepines are also useful for agitation during acute psychosis. Lorazepam has the advantage of reliable absorption when administering it either orally or intramuscularly. The use of benzodiazepines may also reduce the amount of antipsychotic that is needed to control psychotic patients. Treating side effects. Patients frequently experience the side effects of an antipsychotic before they experience clinical improvement. Whereas a clinical response may take days or weeks after starting a drug, side effects may begin almost immediately. First-generation antipsychotics most commonly cause extrapyramidal side effects, and in the case of low potency, first-generation antipsychotics, sedation and postural hypotension, whereas second-generation antipsychotics cause weight gain and metabolic derangements. Extrapyramidal side effects. Most first-generation antipsychotics cause extrapyramidal side effects, including Parkinsonian symptoms, dystonias, and akathisia. Although less common in second-generation antipsychotics, extrapyramidal effects can still occur. Table 5 to 10. Pharmacologic, formulation and dosing information for second-generation antipsychotics and selected first-generation antipsychotics. Clinicians have several alternatives for treating these side effects. These include reducing the dose of the antipsychotic, adding an anti-Parkinson medication, and changing the patient to a medication that is less likely to cause extrapyramidal side effects. The most effective anti-Parkinson medications are anticholinergic anti-Parkinson drugs. However, these medications have additional side effects, including dry mouth, constipation, blurred vision, and, often, memory loss. Also, these medications are often only partially effective, leaving patients with substantial amounts of lingering extrapyramidal side effects. Centrally acting beta blockers, such as propranolol, may help treat akathisia. Most patients respond to dosages between 30 and 90 mg per day. If prescribing conventional antipsychotics, clinicians may consider prescribing prophylactic anti-Parkinson medications for patients who are likely to experience disturbing extrapyramidal side effects. These include patients who have a history of extrapyramidal side effect sensitivity and those treated with relatively high doses of high-potency drugs. Prophylactic anti-Parkinson medications may help when prescribing high-potency drugs for young men, who tend to have an increased vulnerability for developing dystonias. Again, these patients should be candidates for newer drugs. Some individuals are highly sensitive to extrapyramidal side effects at the dose that is necessary to control their psychosis. For many of these patients, medication side effects may seem worse than the illness itself. These patients should be treated routinely with a medication less likely to cause extrapyramidal side effects. Risperidone may cause extrapyramidal side effects even at low doses, for example, 0 mg, but the severity and risk are increased at higher doses, for example, more than 6 mg. Olanzapine and zapracidone are also associated with dose-related Parkinsonism and akathisia. Tardive dyskinesia. About 20-30% of patients on long-term treatment with a first-generation antipsychotic will exhibit symptoms of tardive dyskinesia. 
About 3-5% of young patients receiving a first-generation drug develop tardive dyskinesia each year. The risk in elderly patients is much higher. Although severely disabling dyskinesia is uncommon, it can affect walking, breathing, eating, and talking when it occurs. Individuals who are more sensitive to acute extrapyramidal side effects appear to be more vulnerable to developing tardive dyskinesia. Patients with comorbid cognitive or mood disorders may also be more vulnerable to tardive dyskinesia than those with only schizophrenia. The abnormal movements usually begin while the patient is receiving an antipsychotic or within four weeks of discontinuing an oral antipsychotic or eight weeks after the withdrawal of a depot antipsychotic. There is a lower risk of tardive dyskinesia with new generation drugs. However, there still is some risk of tardive dyskinesia with newer drugs. Recommendations for preventing and managing tardive dyskinesia include 1. Using the lowest effective dose of antipsychotics. 2. Prescribing cautiously with children, elderly patients, and patients with mood disorders. 3. Examining patients regularly for evidence of tardive dyskinesia. 4. Considering alternatives to the current antipsychotic and considering dosage reduction when observing tardive dyskinesia. And 5. Considering several options if the tardive dyskinesia worsens, including discontinuing the antipsychotic or switching to a different drug. Clozapine is effective in reducing severe tardive dyskinesia or tardive dystonia. Other side effects. Sedation and postural hypotension can be significant side effects for patients treated with low-potency first-generation drugs, such as perfenazine. These effects are often most severe during the initial dosing of these medications. As a result, patients treated with these medications, or with clozapine, may require weeks to reach a therapeutic dose. Although most patients develop tolerance to sedation and postural hypotension, sedation may continue to be a problem. In these patients, daytime drowsiness may interfere with a patient's attempts to return to community life. All antipsychotics elevate prolactin levels, which can result in galactorrhea and irregular menses. Long-term elevations in prolactin and the resultant suppression in gonadotropin-releasing hormone can cause suppression in gonadal hormones. These, in turn, may have effects on libido and sexual functioning. There is also concern that elevated prolactin may cause decreases in bone density and lead to osteoporosis. The concerns about hyperprolactinemia, sexual functioning, and bone density are based on experiences with prolactin elevations related to tumors and other causes. It is unclear if these risks are also associated with the lower elevations that occur with prolactin-elevating drugs. Health monitoring in patients receiving antipsychotics. Because of the effects of the second-generation antipsychotics on insulin metabolism, psychiatrists should monitor several health indicators, including BMI, fasting blood glucose, and lipid profiles. We should weigh patients and calculate their BMIs for every visit for at least six months after a medication change. Clozapine. Clozapine is considered the most effective of antipsychotics, particularly in patients who have been unresponsive to other treatments. However, it is a challenging drug to administer, given its risk of both severe side effects, a granulocytosis in approximately 0% of those taking it, seizures in as high as 5% of those on doses above 600 mg, and, more rarely, myocarditis, and common ones, hypersalivation, sedation, tachycardia, weight gain, and postural hypotension. The concerns over agranulocytosis have resulted in a monitoring system in the United States in which patients who receive clozapine must be in a program of weekly blood monitoring for the first six months and bi-weekly monitoring for the next six months, and monthly after that. These limitations have relegated clozapine to a later treatment option, and most guidelines recommend considering it after a patient has failed at least two other antipsychotic trials. Duration and prophylaxis. In the stable or maintenance phase, the illness is in a relative stage of remission. The goals during this phase are to prevent psychotic relapse and to assist patients in improving their level of functioning. Newer medications, with a substantially reduced risk of tardive dyskinesia, have diminished one of the major concerns about long-term treatment. During this phase, patients are usually in a relative state of remission with only minimal psychotic symptoms. 
Stable patients who are maintained on an antipsychotic have a much lower relapse rate than patients who have their medications discontinued. Data suggests that 16-23% of patients receiving treatment will experience a relapse within one year, and 53-72% will relapse without medications. We should maintain patients experiencing a first episode of psychosis for at least a year. However, such patients still have a high chance of relapsing at least once over the following five years, and some experts believe that one year is inadequate. This is a particular concern when patients have achieved functional employment status or are involved in educational programs because they have a lot to lose if they experience another psychotic decompensation. For patients experiencing two or more episodes, most experts recommend that we consider indefinite treatment. Acute treatment failures. Addressing noncompliance. Noncompliance with long-term antipsychotic treatment is very high. An estimated 40-50% to 50 of patients become noncompliant within one or two years. Long-acting injectable antipsychotics were developed to help improve adherence, particularly in patients likely to discontinue daily oral medications. Although there is some controversy in the literature, the weight of data suggests that long-term depot formulations do help adherence and decrease relapse, mainly when considered in real-world settings. When beginning long-acting drugs, some oral supplementation is necessary while achieving peak plasma levels. Flufenazine, haloperidol, risperidone, paliperidone, aripiprazole, and olanzapine have long-acting injectable formulations. There are several advantages to using long-acting injectable medication. Clinicians quickly know when noncompliance occurs and have some time to initiate appropriate interventions before the medication effect dissipates. Also, there is less day-to-day -day variability in blood levels, making it easier to establish a minimum effective dose. Finally, many patients prefer it to managing daily dosage schedules. Selecting second treatment options. When giving patients with acute schizophrenia an antipsychotic medication, approximately 60% will improve to the extent that they will achieve a complete remission or experience only mild symptoms. The remaining 40% of patients will improve but still demonstrate variable levels of positive symptoms that are resistant to the medications. One meta-analysis of available studies found that patients who did not show at least some response to treatment by the second week were less likely to benefit from the drug, and a treatment change may be the best option. Rather than categorizing patients into responders and non-responders, it is more accurate to consider the degree to which the illness improves with medication. Some resistant patients are so severely ill that they require chronic institutionalization. Others respond to an antipsychotic with substantial suppression of their psychotic symptoms but demonstrate persistent symptoms, such as hallucinations or delusions. Before considering a patient a poor responder to a particular drug, it is vital to assure that they received an adequate trial of the medication. A four to six week trial on an adequate dose of an antipsychotic represents a reasonable trial for most patients. Patients who demonstrate even a mild amount of improvement during this period may continue to improve at a steady rate for three to six months. It may be helpful to confirm that the patient is receiving an adequate amount of the drug by monitoring the plasma concentration. That said, most of the accepted levels pertain to first-generation drugs, and there is less rationale for obtaining levels in patients who receive second-generation drugs. However, in any patient, a deficient plasma concentration may indicate that the patient has been non-compliant or, more commonly, only partially compliant. It may also suggest that the patient is a rapid metabolizer of the antipsychotic or is not absorbing the drug adequately. Under these conditions, raising the dose may be helpful. If the level is relatively high, clinicians should consider whether side effects may be interfering with therapeutic response. If the patient is responding poorly, one may increase the dose above the usual therapeutic level. However, higher than recommended doses usually do not improve response. Changing to another drug is preferable. As discussed earlier, clozapine is useful for patients who respond poorly to other antipsychotics. Double-blind studies comparing clozapine with other antipsychotics indicated that clozapine had the most evident advantage over conventional drugs in patients with the most severe psychotic symptoms, as well as in those who had previously responded poorly to other antipsychotics. 
Researchers and clinicians have tried several adjunctive medications, most with mixed success. These include lamotrigine, mirtazapine, donepazil, D-alanine, D-serine, estradiol, mamantine, and allopurinol. Other somatic treatments. Researchers have studied electroconvulsive therapy, ECT, in both acute and chronic schizophrenia. Studies in recent onset patients indicate that ECT is about as effective as antipsychotic medications and more effective than psychotherapy. Other studies suggest that supplementing antipsychotic medications with ECT is more effective than antipsychotic medications alone. Antipsychotic medications should be administered during and after ECT treatment. Some initial studies have suggested neuromodulation, using transcranial magnetic stimulation, TMS, or transcranial direct current stimulation, TDCS may be useful for treating hallucinations or negative symptoms. Although we no longer consider psychosurgery to be appropriate treatment, some research centers practice it on a limited experimental basis for severe, intractable cases. Psychosocial therapy. Psychotherapy is considered an essential part of treatment for schizophrenia, and patients who receive psychotherapy along with medications tend to have better adherence to therapy, less negative symptoms, and better overall functioning. Currently, there is no convincing evidence to suggest that any single psychotherapeutic approach is preferable to another, although all tend to emphasize structured approaches rather than open-ended, exploratory methods. Psychosocial therapies include a variety of methods to increase social abilities, self-sufficiency, practical skills, and interpersonal communication in schizophrenia patients. The goal is to enable persons who are severely ill to develop social and vocational skills for independent living. Many sites use these approaches, including hospitals, outpatient clinics, mental health centers, day hospitals, and home or social clubs. Cognitive Behavioral Therapy Cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, has been used in schizophrenia patients to improve cognitive distortions, reduce distractibility, and correct errors in judgment. There are reports of ameliorating delusions and hallucinations in some patients using this method. Patients who might benefit generally have some insight into their illness, and clinicians usually use this approach after treating an acute psychotic episode. The approach generally incorporates cognitive restructuring, self-monitoring, and graded coping skills. Although at least one randomized controlled study showed a benefit for CBT as a sole treatment, most experts recommend it in combination with antipsychotic treatment. Social skills training. Social skills training, also called behavioral skills therapy, can be directly supportive and useful for a patient. In addition to the psychotic symptoms seen in patients with schizophrenia, other noticeable symptoms involve the way the person relates to others, including poor eye contact, unusual delays in response, odd facial expressions, lack of spontaneity in social situations, and an accurate perception or lack of perception of emotions in other people. Behavioral skills training addresses these behaviors through the use of videotapes of others and the patient, role-playing and therapy, and homework assignments for practicing the specific skills. Social skills training can reduce relapse rates and the need for hospitalization. Group therapy. Group psychotherapy for patients with schizophrenia can help improve social functioning and decrease negative symptoms. Group therapy for persons with schizophrenia generally focuses on real-life plans, problems, and relationships. Groups may be behaviorally oriented, psychodynamically or insight-oriented, or supportive. Some investigators doubt that dynamic interpretation and insight therapy are valuable for typical patients with schizophrenia. However, group therapy is effective in reducing social isolation, increasing the sense of cohesiveness, and improving reality testing for patients with schizophrenia. Groups led in a supportive manner appear to be most helpful for schizophrenia patients. Family-oriented therapies. Family therapy can be a significant adjunct to treatment and reduces relapse and rehospitalization rates compared to patients receiving standard care. Such therapy generally includes practical approaches such as psychoeducation and problem-solving training. Because patients with schizophrenia are often discharged in an only partially remitted state, a family to which a patient returns can often benefit from a brief but intensive, 
as often as daily course of family therapy. The therapy should focus on the immediate situation and should include identifying and avoiding potentially troublesome situations. When problems do emerge with the patient in the family, the aim of the therapy should be to resolve the problem quickly. In wanting to help, family members often encourage a relative with schizophrenia to resume regular activities too quickly, both from ignorance about the disorder and from denial of its severity. Without being overly discouraging, therapists must help both the family and the patient understand and learn about schizophrenia and must encourage discussion of the psychotic episode and the events leading up to it. Ignoring the psychotic episode, a common occurrence, often increases the shame associated with the event and does not exploit the freshness of the episode to understand it better. Psychotic symptoms often frighten family members, and talking openly with the psychiatrist and with the relative with schizophrenia often eases all parties. Therapists can direct later family therapy toward the long-range application of stress-reducing and coping strategies and the patient's gradual reintegration into everyday life. Therapists must control the emotional intensity of family sessions with patients with schizophrenia. The excessive expression of emotion during a session can damage a patient's recovery process and undermine potentially successful future family therapy. Several studies have shown that family therapy is especially useful in reducing relapses. Case management and assertive community treatment. Because a variety of professionals with specialized skills, such as psychiatrists, social workers, and occupational therapists, among others, are involved in a treatment program, it is helpful to have one person aware of all the forces acting on the patient. The case manager helps coordinate this and ensures that the patient keeps appointments and complies with treatment plans. The case manager may also make home visits and even accompany the patient to work. The success of the program depends on the educational background, training, and competence of the individual case manager, which vary. Most important is maintaining a small caseload, less than 20 cases per manager, which can be challenging for overtaxed and underfunded systems. The Assertive Community Treatment, ACT, program was initially developed by researchers in Madison, Wisconsin, in the 1970s, for the delivery of services for persons with chronic mental illness. Patients are assigned to one multidisciplinary team, e.g., case manager, psychiatrist, nurse, general physicians. The team has a fixed caseload of patients and delivers all services when and where needed by the patient, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. ACT is a mobile and intensive intervention that provides treatment, rehabilitation, and support activities. These include home delivery of medications, monitoring of mental and physical health, in vivo social skills, and frequent contact with family members. There is a high staff-to-patient ratio, 1-12. ACT programs can effectively decrease the risk of rehospitalization for persons with schizophrenia, but they are labor-intensive and expensive programs to administer. Although the evidence is low in quality, there is some evidence to suggest that intensive case management can reduce hospitalization time and increase adherence to treatment. Intensive case management approaches seem to be most effective when they incorporate ACT. Individual psychotherapy. Studies of the effects of individual psychotherapy in the treatment of schizophrenia suggest that therapy is helpful and that the effects are additive to those of pharmacologic treatment. In psychotherapy with a schizophrenia patient, developing a therapeutic relationship that the patient experiences is safe is critical. The therapist's reliability, the emotional distance between the therapist and the patient, and the genuineness of the therapist as interpreted by the patient all affect the therapeutic experience. When considering psychotherapy for a patient with schizophrenia, we should think in decades, rather than sessions, months, or even years. The best predictor of psychotherapy outcome is probably the strength of the therapeutic alliance. Schizophrenia patients who can form a positive therapeutic alliance are likely to remain in psychotherapy, to remain compliant with their medications, and to have good outcomes at two-year follow-up evaluations. The relationship between clinicians and patients differs from that encountered in the treatment of non-psychotic patients. Establishing a relationship is often challenging. Persons with schizophrenia are desperately lonely, yet defend against closeness and trust. They are likely to become suspicious, anxious, or hostile or to regress when someone attempts to draw close. 
Therapists should scrupulously respect a patient's distance and privacy and should demonstrate simple directness, patience, sincerity, and sensitivity to social conventions in preference to premature informality and the condescending use of first names. The patient is likely to perceive exaggerated warmth or professions of friendship as attempts at bribery, manipulation, or exploitation. In the context of a professional relationship, however, flexibility is essential in establishing a working alliance with the patient. Vocational therapy and supported employment. A variety of methods and settings can help patients regain old skills or develop new ones. These include sheltered workshops, job clubs, and part-time or transitional employment programs. Enabling patients to become gainfully employed is both a means toward and a sign of recovery. Many schizophrenia patients are capable of performing high-quality work despite their illness. Others may exhibit exceptional skill or even brilliance in a limited field as a result of some distinctive aspects of their disorder. Supported employment focuses on helping patients to obtain competitive employment as opposed to sheltered workshops. It has strong data for helping patients to find and maintain jobs. It also is associated with less need for treatment and improved self-esteem. It is less consistently associated with overall disease outcomes. Art therapy. Many schizophrenia patients benefit from art therapy, which provides them with an outlet for their constant bombardment of imagery. It helps them communicate with others and share their inner, often frightening world with others. Cognitive remediation. Cognitive remediation or cognitive training is a behavioral therapy that attempts to improve cognitive processes. It uses computer-generated exercises to influence neural networks to improve cognition, including working memory. This can then improve social functioning. One meta-analysis determined that its effect size is in the medium range. National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI. The NAMI and similar organizations offer support groups for family members and friends of patients who are mentally ill and for patients themselves. These organizations offer emotional and practical advice about obtaining care in the sometimes complex healthcare delivery system and are useful sources to which to refer family members. NAMI has also waged a campaign to destigmatize mental illness and to increase government awareness of the needs and rights of persons who are mentally ill and their families. The epidemiology of the disorders. Incidence and prevalence. The worldwide lifetime prevalence of schizophrenia is about 0%. One meta-analysis of 101 prevalence rates published between 1990 and 2015 found that the mean global lifetime prevalence of psychotic disorders worldwide was 7. Per 1, individuals. However, there was an extensive range across studies representing an approximately five-fold difference. These variations could largely be accounted for by the different methodologic approaches of different studies, including different populations and settings studied, different diagnostic criteria and diagnoses included, and differences in the study quality. Table 5 to 11 lists some of the major epidemiologic studies of schizophrenia. In the United States, about 0% of the total population is treated for schizophrenia in any single year. Perhaps only one half of all patients with schizophrenia will obtain treatment, despite the severity of the disorder. Sex. Schizophrenia is equally prevalent in men and women. The two sexes differ in the onset and course of illness. The onset of schizophrenia is earlier for men. Also, more than half of all male schizophrenia patients, but only one-third of all female schizophrenia patients, will be hospitalized for the disorder before age 25 years. Some studies have indicated that men are more likely to be impaired by negative symptoms than are women and that women are more likely to have better social functioning than are men before disease onset. In general, the outcome for female schizophrenia patients is better than that for male schizophrenia patients. Age. In the United States, the peak ages of onset are between 10 and 25 years for men and 25 and 35 years for women. Unlike men, women display a bimodal age distribution, with a second peak occurring in middle age. Approximately 3 to 10% of women with schizophrenia present with disease onset after age 40 years. About 90% of patients in treatment for schizophrenia are between 15 and 55 years old. The onset of schizophrenia before age 10 years or after age 60 years is scarce. Late-onset schizophrenia refers to the occurrence of the disorder after age 45 years. 
Other factors affecting epidemiology. Seasonality of birth. Persons who develop schizophrenia are more likely to have been born in the winter or early spring. In the Northern Hemisphere, including the United States, persons with schizophrenia are more often born in the months from January to April. In the Southern Hemisphere, persons with schizophrenia are more often born in the months from July to September. Maternal factors affecting the fetus. Complications during delivery, maternal malnutrition during pregnancy, as well as other illnesses, appear to be risk factors for schizophrenia. Early life experiences. Childhood trauma, social isolation, and other types of deprivation also seem to be risk factors. Urban upbringing. Several studies, mainly from the 1990s, have suggested that being born or living in a city is a risk for schizophrenia. This has been reported in various countries. The relationship appears to be more convincing for being raised in rather than being born in a city. The relationship may be dose-related, meaning that the larger the city, the higher the risk. Cannabis. There is an association between cannabis use and psychosis, and the use of cannabis may increase the risk of schizophrenia by as much as 40%, particularly in heavy users. Cognitive deficits may also be a risk factor. More recent research has suggested that cognitive deficits, such as poor verbal learning and memory and slower processing speed, can be a predictor of impending psychosis. Other psychotic disorders. Schizoaffective disorder is less common than schizophrenia, possibly in the range of 0 to 0 percent, although the varying criteria used in different studies limits the findings. The sex differences are more typical of mood disorders in which there is a higher ratio of women than men having the depressed subtype but a similar ratio with the bipolar subtype. The bipolar subtype may be more common in younger persons than in adults, who are more commonly depressed. As with schizophrenia, women tend to get it later than men. Table 5 to 11. Selected prevalence studies of schizophrenia. We know little about the incidence, prevalence, and sex ratio of schizophreniform disorder. It appears to be about half as common as schizophrenia, more common in men, and most common in adolescents and young adults. The relatives of patients with schizophreniform disorder are more likely to have mood disorders than are the relatives of patients with schizophrenia. Many of those mood disorders include psychotic symptoms, however. The neurobiology of the disorder. Anatomic findings. In the 19th century, neuropathologists failed to find a neuropathologic basis for schizophrenia, and thus they classified schizophrenia as a functional disorder. By the end of the 20th century, however, researchers had better tools and made significant strides in revealing a potential neuropathologic basis for schizophrenia. Cerebral ventricles. Computed tomography, CT, scans of patients with schizophrenia have consistently shown lateral and third ventricular enlargement and some reduction in cortical volume. Reduced volumes of cortical gray matter have been demonstrated during the earliest stages of the disease. Several investigators have attempted to determine whether the abnormalities detected by CT are progressive or static. Some studies have concluded that the lesions observed on CT scan are present at the onset of the illness and do not progress. Other studies, however, have concluded that the pathologic process visualized on CT scan continues to progress during the illness. Thus, whether an active pathologic process is continuing to evolve in schizophrenia patients is still uncertain. Reduced symmetry. There is a reduced symmetry in several brain areas in schizophrenia, including the temporal, frontal, and occipital lobes. This reduced symmetry is believed by some investigators to originate during fetal life and to be indicative of a disruption in brain lateralization during neurodevelopment. Limbic system. Because of its role in controlling emotions, researchers believe that the limbic system is involved in the pathophysiology of schizophrenia. Studies of postmortem brain samples from schizophrenia patients have shown a decrease in the size of the region, including the amygdala, the hippocampus, and the parahippocampal gyrus. This neuropathologic finding agrees with the observation made by magnetic resonance imaging studies of patients with schizophrenia. The hippocampus is not only smaller in size in schizophrenia but is also functionally abnormal, as indicated by disturbances in glutamate transmission. 
Brain tissue sections also show the disorganization of the neurons within the hippocampus in some patients with schizophrenia. Prefrontal cortex. There is considerable evidence from postmortem brain studies that support anatomical abnormalities in the prefrontal cortex in schizophrenia. Functional deficits in the prefrontal brain imaging region have also been demonstrated. Of interest, several symptoms of schizophrenia mimic those found in persons with prefrontal lobotomies or frontal lobe syndromes. Thalamus. Some studies of the thalamus show evidence of volume shrinkage or neuronal loss in particular subnuclei. The medial dorsal nucleus of the thalamus, which has reciprocal connections with the prefrontal cortex, has been reported to contain a reduced number of neurons. The total number of neurons, oligodendrocytes, and astrocytes is reduced by 30 to 45% in schizophrenia patients. This putative finding does not appear to be due to the effects of antipsychotic drugs, because the volume of the thalamus is similar in size between patients with schizophrenia treated chronically with medication and neuroleptic naive subjects. Basal ganglia and cerebellum. The basal ganglia and cerebellum have been of theoretical interest in schizophrenia for at least two reasons. First, many patients with schizophrenia show odd movements, even in the absence of medication-induced movement disorders. The odd movements can include an awkward gait, facial grimacing, and stereotypies. Because the basal ganglia and cerebellum are involved in the control of movement, disease in these areas is implicated in the pathophysiology of schizophrenia. Second, the movement disorders involving the basal ganglia, e.g., Huntington disease, Parkinson disease, are the ones most commonly associated with psychosis. Neuropathologic studies of the basal ganglia have produced variable and inconclusive reports about cell loss or the reduction of volume of the globus pallidus and the substantia nigra. Studies have also shown an increase in the number of D2 receptors in the caudate, putamen, and the nucleus accumbens. The question remains, however, whether the increase is secondary to the patient having received antipsychotic medications. Some investigators have begun to study the serotonergic system in the basal ganglia. The clinical usefulness of antipsychotic drugs that are serotonin antagonists suggests a role for serotonin in psychotic disorders. Physiologic findings. Functional imagining. PET studies have shown a variety of neurotransmitter abnormalities, including increased dopamine levels in the ventral striatum and reduced levels in the frontal cortex. Studies using magnetic resonance spectroscopy have demonstrated increased glutamate levels, particularly in the prefrontal and medial temporal areas. Furthermore, concentrations of N-acetyl aspartate, a marker of neurons, were lower in the hippocampus and frontal lobes of patients with schizophrenia. Electrophysiologic findings. Electroencephalographic studies indicate that many schizophrenia patients have abnormal records, increased sensitivity to activation procedures, e.g., frequent spike activity after sleep deprivation, decreased alpha activity, increased theta and delta activity, possibly more epileptiform activity than usual, and possibly more left-sided abnormalities than usual. Schizophrenia patients also exhibit an inability to filter out irrelevant sounds and are extremely sensitive to background noise. The flooding of sound that results makes concentration difficult and may be a factor in the production of auditory hallucinations. This sound sensitivity may be associated with a genetic defect. Evoked potentials. A large number of abnormalities are seen in the evoked potential of patients with schizophrenia. The P300 is most studied. It is a large, positive evoked potential wave that occurs about 300 milliseconds after a sensory stimulus is detected. The primary source of the P300 wave is likely in the limbic system structures of the medial temporal lobes. In patients with schizophrenia, the P300 is statistically smaller than in comparison groups. Abnormalities in the P300 wave are also common in children who, because they have affected parents, are at high risk for schizophrenia. Whether the characteristics of the P300 represent a state or a trait phenomenon remains controversial. Other evoked potentials reported to be abnormal in patients with schizophrenia are the N100 and the contingent negative variation. The N100 is a negative wave that occurs about 100 milliseconds after a stimulus, 
and the contingent negative variation is a slowly developing, negative voltage shift following the presentation of a sensory stimulus that is a warning for an upcoming stimulus. The evoked potential data likely indicates that, although patients with schizophrenia are unusually sensitive to a sensory stimulus, larger early evoked potentials, they compensate for the increased sensitivity by blending the processing of information at higher cortical levels, indicated by smaller late evoked potentials. Eye movement dysfunction. The inability to follow a moving visual target accurately is the defining basis for the disorders of smooth visual pursuit and disinhibition of saccadic eye movements seen in patients with schizophrenia. Eye movement dysfunction may be a trait marker for schizophrenia. It is independent of drug treatment and clinical state and also occurs in first-degree relatives of proband with schizophrenia. Various studies have reported abnormal eye movements in 50-85% of patients with schizophrenia compared with about 25% in psychiatric patients without schizophrenia and fewer than 10% in non-psychiatrically ill control participants. Prepulse inhibition deficits. Prepulse inhibition refers to a dysfunction of sensorimotor gating. Usually, a prepulse or weak stimulus, such as a noise, can decrease the startle reaction to a subsequent more substantial stimulus, such as a louder noise. As early as the 1970s, researchers found that patients with schizophrenia lacked this normal inhibition, and this was later found in the relatives of schizophrenia patients as well. Dopamine regulates sensorimotor gating, which adds additional support for the importance of dopamine in schizophrenia. Neurotransmitters and receptors. Excessive dopamine release in patients with schizophrenia is associated with the severity of positive psychotic symptoms. Positron emission tomography studies of dopamine receptors have shown that patients with schizophrenia have increases in subcortical synaptic dopamine content and increased subcortical synthesis capacity. These appear localized to the area of the associative striatum. These abnormalities, particularly increased subcortical synaptic dopamine content, are associated with the positive symptoms of schizophrenia and positive treatment response. However, the dopamine abnormalities are not merely due to the symptoms, as these abnormalities precede the onset of illness. They also occur in individuals considered to be at high risk for schizophrenia. In addition to dopamine, there are increased levels of glutamate and decreased levels of gamma-aminobutyric acid, gamma-aminobutyric acid. Some patients with schizophrenia show a loss of GABAergic neurons in the hippocampus. Postmortem studies in schizophrenia have demonstrated decreased muscarinic and nicotinic receptors in the caudate putamen, hippocampus, and selected regions of the prefrontal cortex. These receptors play a role in the regulation of neurotransmitter systems involved in cognition, which is impaired in schizophrenia. As a result of these neurotransmitter alterations, there are alterations in a variety of receptors. For example, N-methyl-D-aspartate, N-methyl-D-aspartate, receptors appear to hypofunction as a result of glutamate and dopamine excesses. Psychoneuroimmunology. Several immunologic abnormalities are associated with patients who have schizophrenia. The abnormalities include decreased T-cell interleukin-2 production, reduced number and responsiveness of peripheral lymphocytes, abnormal cellular and humoral reactivity to neurons, and the presence of brain-directed, antibrain, antibodies. The data can be interpreted variously as representing the effects of a neurotoxic virus or an endogenous autoimmune disorder. The observation further strengthens the hypothesis that several autoimmune diseases can cause psychosis, such as systemic lupus encephalitis. Similarly, some types of immune encephalitis, such as anti-N-methyl-D-aspartate receptor encephalitis, can cause a psychotic illness that resembles schizophrenia, at least early in the illness. Psychoneuroendocrinology. Many reports describe neuroendocrine differences between groups of patients with schizophrenia and groups of control subjects. For example, the results of the dexamethasone suppression test are abnormal in various subgroups of patients with schizophrenia, although the test lacks practical or predictive value. Some data suggest decreased concentrations of luteinizing hormone or follicle-stimulating hormone, perhaps correlated with age of onset and length of illness. Two additional reported abnormalities may correlate with the presence of negative symptoms, 
a blunted release of prolactin and growth hormone on gonadotropin-releasing hormone or thyrotropin-releasing hormone stimulation and a blunted release of growth hormone on apomorphine stimulation. Infections. The support for infections being operative in schizophrenia is mostly indirect. As already mentioned, persons with schizophrenia may be more likely to be born in the winter months, thus suggesting a season-specific risk factor such as a virus. There are other explanations, however, such as changes in diet. Epidemiologic data show a high incidence of schizophrenia after prenatal exposure to influenza during several epidemics of the disease. Some studies show that the frequency of schizophrenia increases after exposure to influenza during the second trimester of pregnancy. Influenza is, of course, more prevalent during the winter than other seasons. Other data supporting a viral hypothesis are an increased number of physical anomalies at birth, an increased rate of pregnancy and birth complications, seasonality of birth consistent with a viral infection, geographical clusters of adult cases, and seasonality of hospitalizations. Viral theories stem from the fact that several specific viral theories have the power to explain the particular localization of pathology necessary to account for a range of manifestations in schizophrenia without overt febrile encephalitis. Environmental factors. In addition to infections, a variety of other factors, particularly in the prenatal period, can contribute a small but significant risk for schizophrenia. These include birth complications, trauma after delivery, nutritional deficiencies, and other factors that may negatively affect healthy development. Our understanding of the genetics of schizophrenia. Studies of inheritance patterns. At least as early as the 1930s, twin and family studies demonstrated that schizophrenia was an inherited disorder. The heritability of schizophrenia is estimated to be about 60 to 80 percent. The likelihood of a person having schizophrenia correlates with the closeness of the relationship to an affected relative, e.g., first or second degree relative. In the case of monozygotic twins who have an identical genetic endowment, there is an approximately 50% concordance rate for schizophrenia. This rate is four to five times the concordance rate in dizygotic twins or the rate of occurrence found in other first-degree relatives, i.e., siblings, parents, or offspring. The role of genetic factors is further reflected by the drop-off in the occurrence of schizophrenia among second- and third-degree relatives, in whom one would hypothesize a decreased genetic loading. The finding of a higher rate of schizophrenia among the biologic relatives of an adopted-away person who develops schizophrenia, compared with the adoptive, non-biologic relatives who raise the patient, provides further support to the genetic contribution to the etiology of schizophrenia. Nevertheless, the monozygotic twin data demonstrate the fact that individuals who are genetically vulnerable to schizophrenia do not inevitably develop schizophrenia. Other factors, e.g., environment, must be involved in determining a schizophrenia outcome. If a vulnerability-iability model of schizophrenia is correct in its postulation of an environmental influence, then other biologic or psychosocial environmental factors may prevent or cause schizophrenia in genetically vulnerable individuals. Some data indicate that the age of the father correlates with the development of schizophrenia. In studies of schizophrenia patients with no history of illness in either the maternal or paternal line, those born from fathers older than the age of 60 years were vulnerable to developing the disorder. Presumably, spermatogenesis in older men is subject to more significant epigenetic damage than in younger men. Genetic studies. The modes of genetic transmission in schizophrenia are unknown, but many genes are associated with schizophrenia. Newer studies using more direct methods, such as comparative genomic hybridization, small nucleotide polymorphism, SNP, CHIPS, next-generation sequencing, NGS, GWAS, and the clustered regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats associated nuclease 9. CRISPR, SAS, genomic editing have revolutionized the genetic research of schizophrenia, and the number of genes associated with schizophrenia continues to rise. Many of these are likely chance findings. However, at least some are plausible candidates for contributing to schizophrenia vulnerability. Linkage and association genetic studies have provided strong evidence for several specific candidate genes. The best candidates are those involved in synaptic transmission, 
including those for various monoamine receptors and those involved in glutamate release and signaling. Given the role dopamine plays in schizophrenia, it is no surprise that many genetic studies have concentrated on genes involved in dopamine regulation. For example, some studies implicate catecholamine O-methyltransferase, COMT, polymorphism, which is involved in dopamine metabolism, as well as other catecholamines. Copy number variation, CNV, studies suggest that perhaps between 2-5% of schizophrenia may be due, in part, to genetic variants that are highly penetrant but very rare. These included genes that were involved in regulating synaptic function and neurodevelopment. An example of a rare variant that is associated with psychosis is the 22Q. Microdeletion, which causes 22Q. Deletion or velocardiofacial syndrome, also called DeGeorge syndrome, which occurs in about 1 in 4, live births. However, most of the risk is explained by common alleles, numbering in the hundreds, each having a small effect on risk. GWAS studies have yielded several loci of interest, including the DRD genes which encode the dopamine receptors, as well as several other loci involved in functions thought essential to the pathogenesis of schizophrenia. These include genes involved with glutamate, calcium signaling, dendritic spine formation, and other aspects of neuronal and neurodevelopmental function. As will be described in greater detail below, subsequent research has focused on genes related to the immune system and involved in synaptic pruning. Many implicated genes do not code for proteins such as those described above, but have a role in genetic processing, affecting transcription and various epigenetic factors. The extensive and sometimes conflicting findings are likely related to the heterogeneity of the disorder, and researchers are working to develop endophenotypes that more closely map to the genetics of the disorder. For example, prepulse inhibition is a likely candidate for a schizophrenia endotype. Researchers have identified several other endophenotype traits. These have the benefit of being measurable and lend themselves to quantitative analysis. The psychology of the disorder. Family dynamics. In a classic early study of four-year-old British children, children rated as having a poor motherhood relationship had a six-fold increase in the risk for schizophrenia. However, this leaves open the question of which came first, the poor relationship or the child's disease-related inability to form close relationships. It is telling that those who were adopted away from their mothers were more likely to develop schizophrenia if raised in adverse circumstances. In another study, children of schizophrenic mothers raised in a kibbutz, a type of commune, were more likely to develop schizophrenia than children raised in a family home. Nevertheless, no well-controlled evidence indicates that a specific family pattern plays a causative role in the development of schizophrenia. Some patients with schizophrenia do come from dysfunctional families, just as do many non-psychiatrically ill persons. It is crucial, however, not to overlook pathologic family behavior that can significantly increase the emotional stress with which a vulnerable patient with schizophrenia must cope. Etiology. Biologic theories. The dopamine hypothesis. The simplest formulation of the dopamine hypothesis of schizophrenia posits that schizophrenia results from too much dopaminergic activity. The theory evolved from two observations. First, the efficacy and the potency of many antipsychotic drugs, i.e., the dopamine receptor antagonists, DROS, correlate with their ability to act as antagonists of the dopamine type 2, D2, receptor. Second, drugs that increase dopaminergic activity, notably cocaine and amphetamine, are psychotomimetic. There is also support from the fact that certain functions that are regulated by dopamine, e.g., prepulse inhibition, are abnormal in patients with schizophrenia. The basic theory does not comment on whether dopaminergic hyperactivity results from too much dopamine, too many dopamine receptors, hypersensitivity of the receptors to dopamine, or a combination of these. Which dopamine tracts in the brain are involved is also not specified. Historically, models of schizophrenia suggested that dysfunctions in the mesolimbic pathway were responsible for the positive symptoms of schizophrenia. This was due to a variety of observations, including that seizures and tumors in these regions produce schizophrenia-like symptoms. 
Also, amphetamines, which can induce psychosis, seem to affect the nucleus accumbens, and antipsychotics injected in this area seem to reverse this effect. However, subsequent research suggests that the striatum, usually thought to be involved in motor function, plays an important role. This is suggested by functional neuroimaging studies, which found that the most significant differences in dopamine function found for schizophrenic patients were in the dorsal striatum and associated projections. This relation is also true for people at high risk for schizophrenia. This area has an integrative role, and dysfunctions in this area could explain the associative deficits that occur in schizophrenia. Also, as this area has a vital role in habit formation, it may argue for a model of psychosis as a habitual or rigid type of thinking, in which a person has difficulty considering alternative explanations for an experience. Serotonin. Current hypotheses posit serotonin excess as a cause of both positive and negative symptoms in schizophrenia. The robust serotonin antagonist activity of clozapine and other second-generation antipsychotics coupled with the effectiveness of clozapine to decrease positive symptoms in chronic patients has contributed to the validity of this proposition. Gamma-aminobutyric acid. Some have implicated the inhibitory amino acid neurotransmitter gamma-aminobutyric acid, gamma-aminobutyric acid, in the pathophysiology of schizophrenia based on the finding that some patients with schizophrenia have a loss of GABAergic neurons in the hippocampus. Gamma-aminobutyric acid has a regulatory effect on dopamine activity, and the loss of inhibitory GABAergic neurons could lead to the hyperactivity of dopaminergic neurons. Neuropeptides. Neuropeptides, such as substance P and neurotensin, are localized with the catecholamine and indolamine neurotransmitters and influence the action of these neurotransmitters. Alteration in neuropeptide mechanisms could facilitate, inhibit, or otherwise alter the pattern of firing in these neuronal systems. Glutamate. Glutamate is also of interest, as ingestion of phencyclidine, a glutamate antagonist, produces an acute syndrome similar to schizophrenia. The hypotheses proposed about glutamate include those of hyperactivity, hypoactivity, and glutamate-induced neurotoxicity. Acetylcholine and nicotine. As noted, some studies suggest deficits in muscarinic and nicotinic receptors. These receptors play a role in the regulation of neurotransmitter systems involved in cognition, which is impaired in schizophrenia. Neural circuits, the disconnect hypothesis. There has been a gradual evolution from conceptualizing schizophrenia as a disorder that involves discrete areas of the brain to a perspective that views schizophrenia as a disorder of brain neural circuits. For example, as mentioned previously, the basal ganglia and cerebellum are reciprocally connected to the frontal lobes, and the abnormalities in frontal lobe function seen in some brain imaging studies may be due to disease in either area rather than in the frontal lobes themselves. It is possible that an early developmental lesion of the dopaminergic tracts to the prefrontal cortex results in the disturbance of the prefrontal and limbic system function and leads to the positive and negative symptoms and cognitive impairments observed in patients with schizophrenia. Of particular interest in the context of neural circuit hypotheses linking the prefrontal cortex and limbic system are studies demonstrating a relationship between hippocampal morphologic abnormalities and disturbances in prefrontal cortex metabolism or function, or both. Data from functional and structural imaging studies in humans suggest that whereas dysfunction of the anterior cingulate basal ganglia thalamocortical circuit underlies the production of positive psychotic symptoms, dysfunction of the dorsolateral prefrontal circuit underlies the production of primary, enduring negative or deficit symptoms. There is a neural basis for cognitive functions that are impaired in patients with schizophrenia. The observation of the relationship among impaired working memory performance, disrupted prefrontal neuronal integrity, altered prefrontal, cingulate, and inferior parietal cortex, an altered hippocampal blood flow provides strong support for disruption of the normal working memory neural circuit in patients with schizophrenia. The involvement of this circuit, at least for auditory hallucinations, has been documented in several functional imaging studies that contrast hallucinating and non-hallucinating patients. Viruses, neurotoxicity, and neuroinflammation. Most carefully conducted investigations that have searched for evidence of neurotoxic viral infections in schizophrenia have had negative results.
However, as noted, indirect epidemiologic data support a viral role. Nonetheless, the inability to detect genetic evidence of viral infection reduces the significance of all circumstantial data. The possibility of autoimmune brain antibodies has some data to support it. The pathophysiologic process, if it exists, however, probably explains only a subset of the population with schizophrenia. The neurotoxicity hypothesis suggests that psychosis can be toxic, increasing stress levels and associated cortisol, leading to brain changes. Also, the use of exogenous toxins such as cannabis and alcohol may further contribute. There is also some evidence that antipsychotic medications could contribute as well. As described below, however, the lack of evidence for neurodegeneration argues against this process. Many studies have suggested that neuroinflammation plays a role in the pathogenesis of schizophrenia. Schizophrenia and certain autoimmune diseases have overlapping clinical, epidemiologic, and genetic features. Furthermore, at least a subset of patients with schizophrenia has laboratory findings indicating immune activation. These findings may be particularly prominent in patients with structural brain changes, although these results are inconsistent. Several GWAS studies have found implicated genes that regulate the immune response, particularly the major histocompatibility complex, MHC, region and specific genes involved in synaptic pruning, lending more support for the neurodevelopmental hypothesis, discussed next. Increasing evidence suggests that schizophrenia is a neurodevelopmental disorder. Schizophrenia is likely a disorder of neurodevelopment, in which the standard neural structure does not develop properly. Earlier researchers speculated that this would be the case based on the observation that many patients who developed schizophrenia in early adulthood had motor and cognitive impairments as younger persons. Also, as discussed above, obstetrical complications are a risk factor for schizophrenia. Furthermore, for many patients with schizophrenia, cognitive deficits do not deteriorate significantly after illness onset. Evidence for this includes the lack of gliosis found in the brains of schizophrenia patients, as well as no consistent evidence of neurodegeneration, which suggests that the significant deficits are not due to cell death but rather the lack of proper cell growth. Also, many of the genes implicated in schizophrenia have relatively higher expression before birth and are likely involved in early brain development. Some of the genes may even affect the placenta, making it more sensitive to environmental stress. As noted, one of the strongest genetic associations found to date for schizophrenia has been with variations in the MHC. These genes, particularly the C4 alleles, are involved in synaptic pruning during critical developmental periods, which occur during adolescence and adulthood, and may explain why symptoms of schizophrenia only become apparent during this period. Schizophrenia likely involves multiple dysfunctions at various levels. We know from neurologic patients suffering various focal lesions that the lesions causing hallucinations are often in the networks associated with that sensory system. Thus, visual hallucinations are associated with occipital lesions as well as other areas along the visual pathway, such as the striatum and thalamus. Similarly, auditory hallucinations can be caused by lesions in the auditory cortex, hippocampus, amygdala, or thalamus. However, most patients with these focal lesions retain insight and recognize their hallucinations for what they are. Lesions in the corticostriatal networks can cause loss of insight, and the dopamine-related dysfunctions in this network likely account for the delusional beliefs about the hallucinations and other disordered thoughts. Still, other circuits are involved in the effective reaction to these abnormal experiences. In this way, the symptoms of schizophrenia are probably due to multiple dysfunctions along several networks. This approach to understanding schizophrenia helps account for why antipsychotics are only partly useful for treating schizophrenia. By normalizing the dopamine dysfunction, antipsychotics decrease the abnormally high dopamine signaling in the associative striatum and reduce the psychotic symptoms associated with the disorder. However, they are acting only on this particular circuit and therefore have little effect on the negative and cognitive symptoms of the disorder. Psychosocial theories. If schizophrenia is a disease of the brain, it is likely to parallel diseases of other organs, e.g., myocardial infarctions, diabetes, whose courses are affected by psychosocial stress.
Thus, clinicians should consider both psychosocial and biologic factors affecting schizophrenia. The disorder affects individual patients, each of whom has a unique psychological makeup. Although many psychodynamic theories about the pathogenesis of schizophrenia seem outdated, perceptive clinical observations can help contemporary clinicians understand how the disease may affect a patient's psyche. Psychoanalytic theories. Sigmund Freud thought that schizophrenia resulted from developmental fixations early in life. These fixations produced defects in ego development, and he postulated that such defects contributed to the symptoms of schizophrenia. Margaret Mahler and Paul Federn concentrated on distortions in the mother-infant relationship, and Harry Stack Sullivan viewed schizophrenia as a disturbance in interpersonal relatedness. To Sullivan, schizophrenia is an adaptive method used to avoid panic, terror, and disintegration of the sense of self. The source of pathologic anxiety results from cumulative experiential traumas during development. The Object Relations Deficit Model of Schizophrenia Object relationship theory posits that relations with other people are, interjected, and applied to new relationships. One can approach the challenge of new relationships by drawing on the internal models one collects from past relationships. In the case of schizophrenia, this normal process is disrupted, presumably due to errors in neurodevelopment that affect the filters that interpret information from the environment. Thus, the interjects one collects are distorted and incomplete, and interpreted as dangerous and threatening. As a result, the patient avoids relationships, thus having less chance for corrective experiences. Reality becomes terrifying, and the reaction is to create an alternate reality through psychotic thinking. This theory has the benefit of accounting for both the positive and negative symptoms of schizophrenia. It also points at potential treatments. For example, the job of the therapist is to provide positive experiences that the patient can interject to help correct their distorted worldview. Regardless of the theoretical model, all psychodynamic approaches rely on the premise that psychotic symptoms have meaning in schizophrenia. Patients, for example, may become grandiose after an injury to their self-esteem. Similarly, all theories recognize that human relatedness may be terrifying for persons with schizophrenia. Although research on the efficacy of psychotherapy with schizophrenia shows mixed results, concerned persons who offer compassion and a sanctuary in the confusing world of schizophrenia must be a cornerstone of any overall treatment plan. Long-term follow-up studies show that some patients who bury psychotic episodes do not benefit from exploratory psychotherapy, but those who can integrate the psychotic experience into their lives may benefit from some insight-oriented approaches. There is renewed interest in the use of long-term individual psychotherapy in the treatment of schizophrenia, especially when combined with medication. Learning theories. According to learning theorists, children who later have schizophrenia learn irrational reactions and ways of thinking by imitating parents who have significant emotional problems. In learning theory, the poor interpersonal relationships of persons with schizophrenia develop because of poor models for learning during childhood. References. Barnes TR. A rating scale for drug-induced akathisia. Bridge J. Psychiatry. 1989, 154-672-676. Bearden C.E., Forsyth J.K. The Many Roads to Psychosis, Recent Advances in Understanding Risk and Mechanisms. F1000 Res. 2018. 7. F1000 Faculty Rev. 1883. Braff D., Stone C., Calloway E., Gayer M., Glick I., Bali L. Prestimulus Effects on Human Startle Reflex in Normals and Schizophrenics. Psychophysiology. 1978. 15, 4, 339 to 343. Bremen E., Murray Erm. A plausible model of schizophrenia must incorporate psychological and social, as well as neurodevelopmental risk factors. Dialogues Clin Neurosci. 2001, 3, 4, 243 to 256. Chong Hai, Tao S. L., Wu D. B. C., Cotram S., C. F., Chiyakunapric N. Global Economic Burden of Schizophrenia, a Systematic Review. Neuropsychiatre Distreet, 2016, 
12 357 373. Dewan M.J.